the mystic desert to snap pictures of the poor. I've been fighting them to brunch, let them crash out on my floor. There's sunshine in my veins, my kitchen's filled with flies. I'm crying out in vain, like a little after the In some of the texts, you know, the stars fall from the sky, which obviously we see in the Bible, you know, a third of the stars fell from the sky, which is a, which is a pole shift. There's no other way to explain that other than, the, you know, seeing an axial pole shift. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting with Mr. Bruce Fenton a little bit later about... Um, a little bit of everything, really, with Bruce. It's a real fun chat. Uh, we didn't really know what we were getting into, but then we ended up going for like two hours and 45 minutes, and uh, it definitely ties into some of Randall's stuff here and there. And yeah, it's a, it's a really good follow-up to 222, so you guys should enjoy it. But first, as always, sitting across from me here, one and only, Graham Kathman Dunlop. I knew that was coming. Did you? Yeah. I was going to go with cat bait. Yeah, I know that's been in the chat. It's been in well. the chat too much. Yeah, not the live chat, just a perpetual chat that we have going on. There is no live chat. I know that's what I'm saying. It's a perpetual. People think chat. when people listen to podcasts and they hear about chat, they think it's a chat. Oh there, no, it's know, just like, an it's ongoing. Not. It's even better than that. So it's not just chatting to losers like us. It's while we're trying to do the show and ignoring you. It's just an ongoing community that actually turned out far exceeded my expectations really? already. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's been some really but cool great. stories like, in when there. You go people chit chatting back and forth, and it's to the point now that like if I pop in there right now. So what we're talking about is like a perpetual Google Hangout. There's a link in the show notes for yeah, it. Yeah, so it looked like it went like four hours this afternoon without anybody chatting, posting anything, and I think it's the wow. first time it's done that in like a long time. It's only been running a month, and it, it's been quite. Has successful. it been a month already? I wow. think it's been about a month and we're up to, it doesn't tell you that, but I know we're up to like 140 some odd people in there, which is really yeah. like, it's a small percentage of our listeners. Like, and that's usually the way it is like 0.5 to 1% or something. Yeah, less listen, than that. Like yeah. interact with, uh, that. with you less than a, a half a percent. What is there? 140. So that times up by a hundred. No, but I mean in general, yeah, less than that. Yeah. Well, yeah. For everything. It's like uh, feed, feedback. I don't know. It, it probably feedback tougher probably to gauge a bit more, because but... if you went across all the things like YouTube, Twitter, we get a lot of interaction on Twitter and stuff like that, right? So it'd be I don't know if that's at one percent, but like support is about one percent. Interaction uh, and support, probably, interaction yeah. support. You ask people to do things and they'll do them. Like all that is around one in a hundred people will yeah will do that. Yeah. And I mean, for subscribers, it's less than that, right? For subscribers, it's more like one in 400. Yeah. Or one in 300. Yeah. Will subscribe and pay us a monthly amount yeah. of whatever. Yeah. And I mean, God bless those people because without them, like. Yeah, you, we couldn't do it now. I mean, no. we didn't ex plan for this to be a big expenditure, but I mean, that's the way it happened. We wanted to do it right. No, I got and, in a fight. And actually, you know what? I'll do the. 
This should be good. So I this got in a fight with a guy on YouTube today. Oh, really? Yeah. And I actually got in a fight with a guy on Twitter today, too. Jeez. About vaccines. But it was a good fight. You know how I say there's certain people, like, I'll, I'll use... Uh, but they were both good fights? No. Well, only one was good. Okay. And the one's still kind of going on right now. Yeah, you should know that, you, you know, vaccines is a pretty polarizing topic. Darren's just looking up the fight right now. Actually, he's engaged in the fight. Right yeah, now. I'm engaged <laughs> in the fight as we go. So sorry. I'm back to that. Well, here, he just asked me the question. Here's a nice thought experiment. If exposed to a disease that is vaccine preventable, would you rather be vaccinated or not? And I would rather be not. Yeah. Because as far as I'm concerned and my outlook on life is that I would rather... Be deal with it the natural way. Yeah. I mean, I blame my allergies on probably the vaccines that I got when I was a kid. And of the studies that are happening now that we're going to talk about a little bit later, the first of its kind that I know of, are showing that, you know, you might not get the chicken pox or the measles, but now you're like 30 times more likely to be dealing with allergies and shit the rest of your life. So, you know what? I'll take the measles. I'll take my chances that I'm the, you know, one in 500 people that die from measles. Or the one in hundred thousand people that die from whooping cough, and you know, and I'm yeah. not saying that these things are fun to get, but I'd rather do, deal with it naturally. I really would. Like right now, they're saying that the problem with these kids not getting chickenpox anymore because of the chickenpox, and they're saying the chickenpox thing worked great, almost eradicated chickenpox. So I'm always like trying to find someone that has chickenpox so I can bring my kids over there and get them chickenpox. What chickenpox thing worked great? The vaccine, the vaccine or the natural way to do it? Oh, the chickenpox yeah. vaccine worked good? So here's, but now all of a sudden they're thinking and, and the, so now there's a huge uptick in sh adult shingles, which is basically the adult form of chickenpox. Right, right, right. And it's much more dangerous than chickenpox. So, right. and what's happening is, so what they're figuring now is that when all these kids got chickenpox and, you know, there's really no bad came from it, um, that it was, you couldn't get it again, but that you could get shingles. So what they're saying now is all these kids had chicken pox. They were running around. None of the adults were worried about it because they had already had chicken pox. And they're saying that that was giving you a natural booster to prevent you from getting shingles. The natural chicken pox. Your kids having chicken pox were preventing you from getting shingles. Because you were being re- Maybe yeah, you already had- yeah, but shingles and chicken pox are different. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. okay. But that was still so, just but, a booster, but the, right? The, 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 the diseases yeah. are similar enough yeah, that yeah. your body can gain a memory and fight it better. Right, okay. So they think now that you we, we were actually getting a booster shot yeah. from our kids. We were getting a booster against shingles, so that's why we didn't have a shingles problem. Now that kids aren't getting chicken pox anymore, adults are getting shingles. So now there has to be an adult shingles vaccine. Right. When if we would have just fucking left well enough alone, it probably yeah. would have been okay. Right. Anyway. Um, so anyway, we'll go back to the YouTubes. So it was a comment on our, on our, uh, where is it? Fuck. It was a comment on the Randall episode, which Cy joined us. And it was uh, mostly all great feedback for Cyrus. But there was one guy who just had to come and say, <laughs> Darren and Graham, keep this guy off the show. <laughs> and I said... And a bunch of people came to Cyrus's defense, actually. 
I said, you know what, guys? Cyrus has supported the show to the tune of like $500 last year. Without folks like him, there would be no show. And he said, and for that, he should be thanked at every opportunity. Consider, though, that the Renaissance masters would have starved and painted nothing if not for their patrons. Yet that did not mean that the patrons got to stick their brushes in the former's camp. So this is just a podcast, buddy. <laughs> and uh, that's how we chose to honor the people that, you know, spend money. No, it's different than that show. even. I mean, we're friends with Cyrus. And, and, yeah, it goes and, deeper than that with Cyrus. Yeah, we're, we're on another venture with him as well. And he's a f- huge Randall fan. I mean, that's he's the, a huge you know, friend of the show. And Randall's totally cool with talking to him. Yeah. And uh, so everyone else was super stoked about Cyrus coming on the show. And they actually, buddy said, here's a vote for Cyrus. I hope you are as free with your donations as, as you are with your criticism, bud. <laughs> Let's do that guy's probably never supported the show. He's, what did he say? Here's a vote for Cyrus. Oh. And I hope you are as free with your donations as you are with your criticism. Okay. And buddy's name. I don't think he's ever donated. So actually the Randall thing got a whole, and then some other guy bitched about the video that it wasn't high res enough. Oh yeah. And Mr. Owl pitched in and said, can't you be happy with free content? Would you also like a free drink with your choice of either free pizza or hot wings? You'd probably complain about that too. (laughs) Uh, What else do we got here? You guys are awesome. Great show. Proud of you guys. You're going places. What was the fight on on YouTube then? What was the fight? Over Cyrus. Oh, that wasn't wasn't a fight. fight. You just just replied. I just replied and blocked him. No, did you? (laughs) Yeah, like, we get block happy on Blocked YouTube. him from YouTube? I think he can still comment, but we just won't see it. What's the point of that? If everybody else can see it and you can't. No, no one can see oh, it. Oh, no one can <laughs> see it? Only he can see it. He thinks he's just... He thinks he's trolling and he's really just... <laughs> he's really just on his own little adventure. Ah, uh, Gr- Randall Carlson, the world's most interesting man. Thank you, Grimerica. Climate change is fake and you know it's a gov-op. Uh, what else do we got? 4 a.m. on the East Coast, and I'm waking up to listen. Thank you in advance for this. Love you, Big Angry 8. Guys, for reals, this was his best podcast yet on your show. Going to listen to it many, many more times. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, Randall's a special dude, man. He's... Oh, video's not in sync with the audio. I can't watch it. <laughs> I really want to see the video. <laughs> So it is only, you, you only have to deal with that for like the first 20 minutes and then it goes into the slides, which apparently are too shitty of quality. But really? The slides too? I don't know. I haven't tried to watch it. I just posted. Okay. Yeah. But I'm going to send all the files to a friend of the show, Jeff D, and he's going to do it all properly for us. And hey, Jeff D, if you want me to like promote anything of yours, send it over and we'll give it a shout out. I don't know if you have a website or if you do it for yourself or you just work for some company, but. But yeah, we really if appreciate it. If there's anything it. we can shout out for you, let us know. What do you got? Well, I mean, I've been accumulating some some stuff on geoengineering and climate change, and I'll save that for another episode, just so people know. And there's also a lot of listeners sending in trip reports, so if you haven't heard me say that, I'm kind of accumulating those as well for another episode. Probably next one, because this intro, this is another interview yeah. that went super long. Yeah. It's like six hours of interview we've given you guys in the last yeah. week. Yeah. But I do have, um, I don't know. I mean, I got some, some stuff to talk about. Is I going to finish my rant? Yeah. Yeah. Point? Let's, yeah, let's do, let's finish the vaccine thing first. Okay. And I was going to leave it alone, 
Uh, the only reason I brought it up, and it's got nothing to do with my Twitter fight. It's well, just, yeah, what's, what's, what was the Twitter fight about? Uh, nothing, just arguing about vaccines. Because I posted because uh, it got leaked that... So they're projecting that at the end of the fiscal year in September, the Vaccine Compensation Board will have given away about a quarter billion dollars. Quarter billion? Handed out to people whose children were injured by vaccines. And this is that slush fund that the vac that the that the big pharma companies slock sock away just for That's this right. emergency. Yeah, because so I can give you the link. So, so even can, though they can't be really sued, right? This so is sort of a payoff, in, or yeah. So the vaccine injury payouts for 27, 2017 released, and it's going to be close to a quarter billion dollars handed out to kids that were injured by vaccines. So I mean, they're considered safe and effective, which is fine, but Clearly, they're not. I don't, you know, I don't even want to go that far because it's that polarized. But I, I, I just say you should make your own choices and do your own research and assume that the doctor that's talking to you hasn't done the research because nine times out of 10, he probably hasn't. Like, I'm lucky I, we have a doctor that was open and honest about it, right? Most people probably don't. Their doctor will just say whatever to, I'm sure they get, you know, in the States, you get bonuses and stuff. But it's not just the doctor. It's just the trusting the pharmaceutical companies and the science behind all these studies. Like, have there's they no been? Science. Have they been? There's no long-term study. That's what I'm that's saying. From, so that's why the reason I'm bringing it up again is because there actually is someone sent me, and this just came out a few days ago. It was in yeah, it was this month, just the other day. Uh, the date escapes me now, but it was 2017. So I want to say it was like May 8th or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from the journal of translational science. So it's peer reviewed and all that. And it's the first time I've seen a scholarly scientific research article, um, calling out vaccines. And of course it, it doesn't start out like that because I don't think you'd even get it in. So it's a pilot comparative study on health of vaccinated and unvaccinated six to 12 year olds. And what they did is I think they did it, um, because they wanted to make sure that living conditions and everything were, were the same. So they did it. I think they used um, homeschooled kids. Yep. Um, yep. So we'll link to the study so you can read it. No, I, I'm just going to skim it. Yeah, What's go it? for it. Um, so it works out. And it's not a huge study because, like they say, it's hard to get these kind of huge studies together. But I think it was about... Uh, here it is. 412, um, fully vaccinated or partially vaccinated. And I think they had about 300, um, not vaccinated. You know what? I actually, for some reason, I remember the total number of kids being 666. Yeah, it was. Which is fucked up. Is that what it is? Yeah. Because I have the, I only have the research article. 39% of whom weren't vaccinated. That's right. Yeah. And, um. So, of course, they've taken the differences in numbers into account and everything. So, let's just, uh, okay, that's just vaccinated. Here's talk about something while I find where I need to be here. Well, I've also got that in Retraction Watch because this was actually retracted as well. And that probably is why it got so much publicity. It's been twice now, this, this, this study, which there was a different study a while ago. But I was on Retraction Watch here and it's been retracted again. This one has? Yeah. From just the other day? Uh, yeah. So, and there's some sort of nasty comments in there about it and stuff. It really shows how polarizing this whole topic is. 
because it seems like whenever these studies come out, like I've been trying to find other ones in retraction watch as well. And whenever yeah. they come out that are against um, vaccines and showing some sort of link to autism or neurodegeneration, it's, uh, it's retracted. Really? Yeah. That's how they get you. Okay, so just coming down here, I think I'm where I need to be. So this is vaccinated, vaccination status and health health outcomes. Um, so just a couple chronic diseases. So for just allergic rhinitis, um, you were 10% of vaccinated kids end up with allergic rhinitis to 0.4% of unvaccinated kids, which is about 30 to 1. Uh, allergies later in life, vaccinated at 22%, unvaccinated 6.9%, uh, which is about 4 to 1. ADHD, vaccinated 4.7%, unvaccinated 1%. That seems low. 4 to 1. But these are homeschooled kids too, so yeah. That <laughs> I wonder how much yeah. ADHD would be in the public school system. Yeah, eczema, uh, vaccinated nine point five percent, unvaccinated three point six percent, about three to one. Learning disabilities, vaccinated five point seven percent, unvaccinated one point two percent, or about five point two to one. Neurodevelopment disorder, vaccinated ten point five percent, unvaccinated three point one percent. 3.7 to 1. Uh, other chronic conditions, uh, 44% of vaccinated, 24% of unvaccinated. 2.4 to 1. Um, partial versus full. There's even a, uh, so if you go partial to full, and it's funny because you can almost see it scale up. So on that allergic rhinitis, which is only 0.4% of unvaccinated children, 8.2% of partially vaccinated, 12.7% of fully vaccinated. Mm. So it seems like a collection of something. And it might not even be the vaccines, right? It could just be the shit they're putting in there. Yeah. The aluminum. Yeah. You know, that could be the whole, one of the whole problems. Um, eczema, same thing, 3.5, 8.7, 10.2. Learning disability, 1.2, 5.3, 6.1. So you can kind of see it go up. Like, I think you've got, I don't have the, have you got the odds ones there? No. In that article? No. Anyway, we'll link to it all in the show notes. So it's pretty, to me, it's pretty substantial because this almost exactly um, aligns with this, the, the doctor's study that I was talking about before. Yeah. yeah. Do you want me to uh, read some of the comments or browse over some of the comments in this retraction watch for this? Sure. So some people were talking about, well, why, what's the technical reason why this was retracted? Like, was there a misrepresentation of study methods and procedure? Um, they're talking about, um, or was the second retraction based on self-plagiarism as the cause? So it's pretty interesting. It says another comment here trying to say, uh, I'd like to know the precise reason why this was retracted. And then there's this one guy that says, uh, call me cynical, but I doubt if either of these figures is correct. The project was controlled by a man who showered fawning psychophanic praise on a known research cheat, Wakefield. 
and was promptly rewarded by anti-vax campaigners with money to carry out another of Wakefield's ludicrous projects. The modus operandi, as usual, is to invite parents to offer detailed retrospective clinical information about their children in circumstances where, box loads of other research shows, their recollections are both full of error and thick with motivation. It's the purest junk and I wouldn't believe a word of it. So, you know, completely from the other side, right? Wakefield is a is a fraud, you know, instead of being a whistleblower. And uh, you can't believe anything the parents say. You know, it's not scientific enough. Like, I mean, shouldn't that be a cause for at least investigating a little further? Like, there's some trends here. Yeah. You know, well, I still think it's, it's coming. Yeah. I think it's coming. I don't think, uh, you know, I think it's just going to... I think it, it if 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 there's something there, it, it just can't keep going. You know what I mean? It seems like all this stuff is getting worse. Yeah. There's another one here uh, going back a little ways. Uh, it says, Journal makes it official retracting controversial autism vaccine paper. And again, like, there's they're just saying, oh, it's, uh, the editors no longer have confidence in the soundness of the findings. <laughs> Thanks. Because yeah. it's not fucking coming, meeting your agenda? Pretty much. That's what I would argue. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. So I got a couple of emails here to share if you want. Uh, what sort? Jingle worthy? Uh, yeah. Always jingle worthy. Sort of jingle. I got a uh, just a, like a feedback jingle. I've got. Um, we don't have a feedback jingle. I got a, a thing about. Uh, How about this, this one fits everything. And now another edition of the Grime American Goodies. Yeah, that, that's fun. Yeah. Can hey. I have the clipcord? <laughs> no. Yeah, please. Really? Yeah. Give me the clipcord. <sighs> You know, Jackson Taylor hasn't sent us any quotes in a long time. Oh, yeah, right. I hope he's okay. Yeah, I hope so, too. Is he the traveler? That's Jared. Oh, but he, I think, sorry. <laughs> I think Jared's, he was traveling, though. Jared's Jackson going to Easter himself. Island right away. Oh, nice. So I'm sure but, we'll get some pictures of Samoa. Okay, so this is from Jared Mike. actually has to make fashion up a big joint out of something. Stick it in a real Moai's mouth. Oh, yeah. And send us a picture. That's, that would be good. Yeah. Even some faux purple headphones would be good. Yeah, I don't know how you can do the headphones. Yeah. yeah, but if, yeah, yeah, put some time into it. So this is uh, this is from Michael, and he says, uh, this is great show on Synchro. And he says, just wishing to share with you about a guy I've been listening to for a bit now. Knowing what you guys are inspired by, you might want to look into Jason James' work. His channel is... Polarization Nation Media. This young, brilliant mind needs to be interviewed by you. So we'll put that on the list, actually. The long list. His vids have to do with the sub-levels of iconography in all media and connecting it to mystery school symbology and how predictive programming is related to a higher underpinning of game theory. Simulation theory. Have you heard about this game theory? No. Okay. Uh, This is a game that I'm a sim? Yeah, maybe we gotta talk, we gotta look into that, right? Make a note, make a note. On what? His <laughs> <laughs> on your table that you're writing on. You're always doodling. This, His... I should tell Ali that since since the pictures I sent him, my side of the table is in much worse repair. 
I so, sent them pictures of the, from like right after the igloo was set up. Oh yeah, right. So his breakdown of unified field theory code is genius in his analysis of the Back to the Future vids, etc. And we had a guy on that uh, that talked about the Back to the Future vids too. They did a whole thing. It was it was David like Charles for a while. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should put a note. I'll write that down and make a note in the show notes for that old episode. Take a note. Okay. See, I'm doing it in the computer. I don't have a computer. You know, I can't press keys because there's too many keyboards. So he says, uh, which from my perspective was the most heavily coded movie of all time. I just ran across the amazing 1950s TV episode that I found that has a guy named Trump saying he will build a wall. Have you heard about this one? Darren? No. This is, a, and I've got a, a link to it in the show notes here, but it, there's a little note here. It says the Trump track. Oh, yeah, I did hear about that. Yeah, I, Micah played a clip of it. Did he? Yeah. So this is a 1958 episode where the U.S. Western called Trackdown, believe it or not, the story was about a traveling con man named, wait for it, Trump. Trump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is all on middle theory. The greasy con man warned the town folk that the world is about to end and only he can save everyone. How? Wait for it, by building a wall. It was foretold, y'all. That's right. So I'll put that in the movie. I mean, in the show notes. <laughs> in the movie? Yeah. So just reverse the protagonist's role with the good sheriff, and he is Trump. I tell you this because you know Dr. J, Dr. John Trump, Donald's uncle, was the first and only to review Tesla's notes after he died. I heard about that, too. Really? Yeah. I'd like to see a link, some links on that. Yeah. So the theory that's banging around in my circles is that Back to the Future is a semi-true story that is really about Trump and his uncle, who's a real MIT physics professor, and Trump is degraded into Biff, who makes all the money in real estate and gambling casinos because he knew what to bet on because of his access to the Tesla time machine. But it looks like Trump is Michael J. Fox's character. Actually, I heard Adam Curry talking about this once. Anyways, in the town square where the theater marquee says, John Trump, Assembly of Christ. Dudes, this is getting weirder by the moment. Okay, send me all that shit. Anyways, I wanted to give so you Trump, guys... A, we thought Trump was Biff, but it turns out he's... Michael J. Fox, yeah. What was his name? In the, I don't know. I can't remember. Huh. Marty. Marty. Marty McFly, motherfucker. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... I want to give you guys a heads up about what I'm seeing. Been working on a book about all this and how it relates to, well, the Nog Hamadi codices. Love your show. Fun and peace. And then he says, P.S. Here's my favorite video by Jason with his take on the way bigger picture, if you will. Love this video. And this is what I've got lined up here for a quick clip. If it works. Darren's going to kill me if it doesn't. So this is the Simpsons coded everything, and it's pretty funny. It's like a five minute video, and it's got all the stuff that Simpsons predicted. You're gonna play five minutes. No, no, no. Okay. Just, just. There's a reason why the Simpsons has been loaded with predictive. Because the Simpsons will sue us back to the Stone Age. Because Hollywood has been loaded with Kabbalah Boys Club members like these guys right here from church. They have it cute. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to Newton. You've got the doctor breakdancing in front of the time machine. They've known when everything's going down. They've coded it into the great works. From the Merchant of Venice to the Magic Flute, 
from great works of literature, stage and film, music and beyond. You've been soaking in it your whole life because the greatest of minds have been a part of this little boys club. They know when it's going down and the power of love is stronger than their magic. They've been casting spells with Hollywood. Hollywood being the wood from a holly tree used to make the magic wands. Although it's not like Harry Potter magic. Abracadabra. It's using language and the razzle-dazzle of spectacle to change your world by changing what you believe. Cool. I like that. There you go. It's, I don't know, man, more and more, it's seeming really like a facade. The whole Hollywood thing is so much just in, injected. There's so much propaganda injected into the TV shows, the movies. Like now that you're kind of thinking about it, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. And I think it's going down. What's going down? Just, it's just getting less popular, less. It's just more polarized. People are not giving a shit anymore about it. The new media is kind of taking over. Like, it's just, it's just not as, uh, so the internet has to go. People like us got to go, man. We're yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. You guys got to check out grammarica.ca slash support. So you can make sure that that doesn't happen. Yep. Keep us going, keep us around and keep us, uh, well, we don't really fight the good fight, but we, well, sure we do. Yeah, we kind of, yeah, we, some we of it's pretty, do. some yeah. of it's pretty. Anyway, like check that. out support guys. Sign up for a monthly if you can. Do a one-time donation if you can. Uh, help us keep going along because, like we said before, it is less than one percent of you that currently do. So be a one percenter. Um, if you can't support the show mon- monetarily, check out the show notes. There's a bunch of different ways there you can do so for free. Uh, sign up for the newsletter at america.ca/news. Uh, send in your stories and synchros and trip reports and such to Graham or whatever you see fit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the review the show wherever you can is great. And the biggest thing of all is to share the show and tell people about the show where, however you do that, whether you do that on social media or whatever works for you, but, uh, your only marketing tool yep. and our only source of revenue. Yep. That's right. Other so, than that, you got anything else? Yeah, me? man. I got a couple, uh, a couple, uh, relevant, uh, emails to share still. One's kind of building a little bit on your vaccine stuff. So this is from, uh, from Johnny. And I think he, he's probably in, in the social medias around here. Well, Aloha, Gramerica. I just got around to listening to a bulk of shows where Aloha, they- Aloha, is he from Hawaii? Uh, probably, I don't know. If you're from Hawaii, email me. Okay. If anyone's from Hawaii, email me. Want some pointers. Yeah. Want some advice? Yeah. I've decided that I want to go to Hawaii. If you go, I think you should go to Maui. That's where I think I'm going to go is to Maui. Yeah, that's, I can give you some advice. I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to hear, especially from locals, right? Yeah. Where's the deals or where to stay or I don't know if there's a bad side of town or anything like that. Yeah. Anyway. It's pretty expensive there in general for a tourist. So it's probably good to get some advice. Yeah, exactly. So if you're from Hawaii, email me. So he says, uh, just got around to listening to a bulk of shows and they were intriguing and great, starting with the John Anthony West bonus episode to the latest, so I'm finally up to date. I made a small contribution to Dr. West's fight for cancer and I wish him the best. I found it very interesting that he is seeing Dr. Brzezinski and he linked to a YouTube video there, which I'll put in the show notes. He says, me and my wife have been following his work for some time now and I think he would be an excellent interview. That's another one you want to write that down? 
Take an oath. <laughs> also, let me say, if you are going to do the Mount Shasta retreat with the ET Let's Talk folks, I'm interested, but would hate to end up in some weird UFO death cult on a mountain. I only live three hours away. Uh-oh. Oh, I'm supposed to not share this. Don't share what? The next, <laughs> the last little bit of this. Did you share it already? No, I don't think so. So well, I got to stop. So anyway. that's the, uh, that's that email. Yeah, we're going long. So thanks, Save Johnny. I'll, t- I'll tell the other, I'll just uh, mention the other one to Darren. Because uh, he, he needs to hear that. And he probably didn't read it when I forwarded it to him. So. No, I didn't read it. Did no. you forward it to me? Probably. Anyway. But that, that's almost a guarantee that he hasn't read it. Okay, so guys. if you need Darren to read your emails, you got to send them to him specifically. Yeah. Do you want me to say one? You want me to read one more, or save it for save it for next? Okay, time. we got a bunch of interest recording the next. Yeah, two that's weeks, right. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay, guys, enjoy the chat with Bruce Fenton, and uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Yeah, that was great. So tonight we've got Bruce Fenton with us. He's um, He's been researching ancient mysteries and human consciousness, two of our favorite topics here, of course. And he's uh, he's written an ebook series, a revolutionary human origins series. The first book, The Forgotten Exodus. And that's about uh, the into Africa theory of human evolution. I've, uh, I've read it. It's pretty fascinating. He's also a current member of the Paleoanthropology Society and the Scientific and medical network and uh yeah he's into all kinds of good stuff here we're uh, happy to have you on the show thanks for coming bruce thank you very much for having me on looking forward to talking about you know all these weird and wonderful topics yeah it's like like you mentioned in your email and i've i've finished your book and it was pretty pretty deep pretty heavy uh tough for me to to wrap my head around but it's a topic that's always interests me like this uh where we came from, right? The human origins and how you, you seem to be right on top of all the latest research, like, like to the, to the, even like 2016. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the book literally does deal with all the cutting edge, you know, um, finds and the latest genetic research pr- projects that have gone on, you know, this, it's all in there, you know, in fact, really, I would just say that it's only in the last couple of years that the evidence has got to a tipping point where I'd say, you know, it has destroyed the old paradigm. <laughs> right. And let's, let's just summarize that for people. Cause so the old paradigm, as far as like this topic goes, is that, um, that humans came out of Africa. How long ago would that be? Like can you summarize, summarize, yeah. summarize sort of the mainstream paradigm for us. And then we'll get into like what you've found. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so essentially the idea is the main, you know, idea is anyway, um, that around 5 million years ago, 
you know, somewhere in Eastern Africa, um, the first of our line was born from a, an ancestral primate. Um, you know, that this single primate, you know, had a daughter that would be the, the you know, the great grandmother of all humans and another daughter that would be the, the great grandmother of all, you know, modern or chimpanzees. And essentially that's where, you know, this where and when that split is meant to have happened. Within about a um, couple of million years, we would then saw the first of what we might call sort of hominins or, you know, more human-like primates that could, you know, use tools. Um, that was one of the significant developments, supposedly, in that timeline. And then at last we appear around about uh, 200,000 years ago or right, so. Right. There was these arch- archaic, what they call archaic Homo sapiens or Homo sapiens idaltu, um, and they appear again in East Africa. And it, then there is two significant migrations that the theory gives. Around 130,000 years ago, humans walked out of Africa into the Levant region and the edges of the Middle East. Uh, but this this first migration essentially failed and that they, they died off within that region. Um, and then there is a second migration out of Africa, which occurs around about 70,000 years ago. And this is the migration which is said to have, you know, colonized the planet. Right, I should just give right. you briefly on the, the roots of that. You know, so you when they went out, they go out through the Levant, through the Middle East, down um, through Asia, um, down into Southeast Asia, and on to Australia by 50,000 years ago. There's an entry into Australia. Uh, Europe is colonized later, around about sort of 35,000 years ago. And then the Americas last, you know, up until recently, you know, it was said about 13,000 years ago. And th- that was that final wave of colonization. It doesn't um, leave a lot of to change color. <laughs> no, that's no, that's my point, kind of. That's because you're a racist. <laughs> well, there's all sorts of anomalies in there, which we can get to as well. I mean, one thing I should add as well is that there's another migration, which is important, although it's not of our ancestors, is that you know there's this um, Homo erectus migration out of Africa, supposedly, at around about 2 million years ago. Um, and these are the ancestors of you know, Neanderthals, Denisovans, and other hominins that are related to us. So they, they supposedly come from this separate earlier migration hmm. okay interesting so lots of little holes lots of gaps in there and, and there really wasn't a lot of uh there wasn't a lot of hardcore research that um that propelled that theory right it was very it was kind of scant it's just one of those things that takes hold uh as as these things do over time yeah i mean if you look at the history of this area of research. I mean, up until a few decades ago, there was still, you know, a majority leaning towards out of Asia theories. Um, you know, that that only started to crumble after the discoveries by Leakey in Africa back in the 60s. Um, but really, finally, the out of Asia theory collapsed in the in the early 90s when um, two very respected scientists, um, Can and Wilson, they they produced papers on this idea that there was an Eve, you know, an origin only in Africa, and this sort of this single African Eve theory that you know we can all trace our line back to this woman in Africa around two hundred thousand years ago, and that she is the mother of you know of all humans, um, and that therefore there is this migration later, um, which populates the world. So, so we're only talking about you know the early nineties that this became the. That completely under you know, the widely held consensus across the planet. Right. Um, so these paradigms do change, you know, they, they come and go, you know, as the evidence changes. And there was always, you know, holes in that theory. It certainly wasn't perfect. Um, but I, I would say it was the, the best 
for the evidence available, you know, to everybody, and that there is always a limitation of, you know, of how many fossil finds were available, etc. So, I mean, you know, to a degree, people were doing the best at what they had. Yeah, I think that's fine. I th- why do you think? Um, why do you think the dogma sets in? Well, there's always money, isn't there? Because I mean, once. Once you are being funded for a particular project or, you know, you've released certain textbooks and books or you're, you're giving certain courses, you know, really you have to look at it. There's, there's not a great benefit to most of the academics for this paradigm to shift. You know, if anything, there is problems. You know, there's confusion, there's problems, there's loss of respectability and credentials. Um, I think that that is one of the major issues you have whenever a paradigm is under threat, you know, not just in this this area, but, yeah. you know, as you know, in, in consciousness research and stuff yeah. that we all have interested in, that the same happens there, that the materialists who really have, at the moment, got domination of the field, you know, are not keen to hand that over to, you know, the, the outside thinkers who are saying, you know, hang on a minute, you know, that doesn't make sense. And I think that's a problem you have everywhere, that those that are, I mean, actually, I mean, I'd say climate change is probably one of the big ones for that, isn't it? There's a lot of budgets. There's a lot of budgets that, you know, you're getting a lot of money, you know, out of these ideas sometimes. So so people don't really want to sort of look at any evidence that undermines their position or their name, their respect, you know, their respectable name in the community. And I think that's a big part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. We're stuck. We're stuck with that. I wonder when that shifted when people got up on their high horse and were like, you know. Just ruined everything. Yeah, so, you can imagine. Like, you know, do you think that a, a leading paleoanthropologist, you know, with multiple degrees, wants to hear that uh, an independent researcher has blown his theory out of the water? <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, maybe he could have blown his own theory out of the water if he would have just not put his. Feet well, that's out. right. Yeah, and they've got the access to the same information that I have, of course. You know, and ahead of me. So, you know, in a way, it's surprising that none of them have sort of, you know pointed at the emperor and said he's got no clothes on because because they could do it and you know get the glory whereas you know i'm most likely to be ignored um <laughs> so it is surprising that at least that we haven't found at least one of these academics that would have stood up and said this but i, I have noticed they're creeping towards some of these conclusions that, I, that i've offered if you look at some of the presentations you'll you'll see that they're starting to say oh well you know this this doesn't really fit you know we're not sure what's happening here and you know it's starting to sound a lot more uncertain i feel like i feel like this is a little easier uh to make that happen than let's say consciousness or climate change because it seems like you've got a little bit more easy access to physical data and and some pretty hard Mm -hmm. dates and stuff like that yeah, that's true. Yes, I mean it's it's not so much based on on models, you know, you know computer models yeah. and simulations. Yeah, so I mean, we there is that advantage in you know in archaeology and anthropology that you know we can look at physical evidence and we can take genes and you know and, and analyze them. So yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it should be easier to change this paradigm than the others. So let's let's get into some of that then. Uh, I guess the the main summary of of your book and your paradigm shifting sort of uh hypothesis mm-hmm. here okay yeah i mean i'll give you a bit of where we where i differ from the mainstream um essentially the evidence you know that is available would tend to say that you know yes that an awful lot of the stages of you know human development um and say a concentration of of ancient humans we call hominins uh, were in africa um, and so in the book, you know, I, I do start off with an analysis of Africa and talk about some of these, you know, 
guess the oldest examples of our of our line. Um, but I do want to throw in something here, and that's that you know originally the first primates that we know of, the you know our earliest ancestors, if you like, were down in in Asia, down in Southeast Asia, and up until around thirty million years ago or so, um, and they made this this exodus to Africa. Um, I think that's important for you just to keep in mind that you know this is not fully an you know an African story anyway. It it really is also a Southeast Asian story, um, and that some of those primates remained there. I mean, of course, we see like the orangutan, you know, is is still down in Southeast Asia. Um, and there is a question mark in my mind as to whether or not perhaps some of these these primates ancestral to us may have also remained in Asia. Um, and I don't discuss that in the book simply because there is not enough evidence as yet, but that evidence may well manifest. We might find that the earliest part of this human story is also a non-African story. Um, but for now, anyway, I, I've stuck with the yes that, you know, it seems that several million years ago, the first hominins appear in Africa. Um, where I differ is that for a start, I mean, I I point out that rather than the first tool use being around two and a half million years ago, uh, that in fact we now know that there were hominins using tools in Africa 3.3 million years ago for a start. So, and we, I should clarify here that, you know, any tool using hominin should be considered homo, i.e. one of our genus. And that's because that was the original criteria for an early human. Um, so if, if we see tool use, we have to say, hang on a minute, you know, these must be homo as well. Um, so the idea that we've arose about two and a half million years ago is the first thing that kind of gets, you know, dealt with in my book that, you know, we're wrong. This that homo were around much earlier, uh, possibly earlier than that. And and that prior to what I what they call Australopithecus, I believe that the other examples that they tackle in Africa are, are basically primates. So I think Australopithecus, for me, are the first of the true Homo species. And you'll note in the book, I actually rename Australopithecus as Homo Australopithecus for, for that reason, um, which is something I, I think that needs to be done in the academic halls as well. They have to recognize that, hang on a minute, you know, this being is also using tools. Yeah. Therefore, it's Lucy was? Yeah, actually, yeah, Lucy... I believe was an early Australopithecus, yes. Um, but prior to that, there are a couple of other, you know, possible ancestors that they do point to in Africa. Um, I tackle those in the book, and I say that, you know, my opinion is that they are they are not really ancestors. I mean, one of them is Salanthropus chadinus. I might not pronounce these well, but my Latin's rusty. Ororin tugenesis. And that these are, you know, these are sort of pre-human forms, which they say may be ancestral. But in all honesty, I mean, they are pretty indistinguishable from from apes. So I'm of the opinion that we should consider them ancestors of apes. So, so is, um, is this Australopithecus? Is Australopithecus. it? Uh, <laughs> is it like halfway between a, a primate and us? Because it is in a timeline. Like if they say that we sort of separated out about 5 million years ago. And this is like 3.3 million now. Um, are we, did we, like, I don't want to just jump in evolution here as well, but I've been yep. reading these other books uh, from Stephen Meyer, like signature in the cell and stuff that, that tries to argue against, um, you know, us evolving from one species to the next, right. That it's more of, there's, you know, the mystery, the Cambrian explosion and, mm -hmm. uh, and some other evidence that shows that we we didn't. But does this is this sort of evidence that we that we came from a common ancestor, like a 
Or is it still just human, like too human? Well, I, I think Australopithecus is hmm, yeah, relatively too human, I suppose. I mean, when you look at these others... Um, the other two that you mentioned, they're, they're, they're definitely more, more Yeah, they're definitely more chimpanzee-like. But, I mean, we're still talking about pretty small-brained, you know, hominins. But then there's another argument there as well, as you know, as to whether the, how important is the size of the brain, which yeah, is yeah. which is another argument. And as we, you know, you guys probably know, I mean, they found people that have just, you know, a thin layer of brain inside the skull and they're, you know, are performing perfectly well in their lives. Um, and then we have, you know, the blue whale and stuff that have enormous brains and that they're not necessarily more intelligent in the way we judge intelligent than, than we are. So, I mean, this this issue of the brain also is a bit, I think, it's a, it's a bit of um, no, it's a bit of a confusing one because we can, we can easily say, okay, well, this one's got a bigger brain, but yet was it using that in, a, in an intelligent way? Or So, I mean, that's another issue. But I, yeah. I do think in terms of the form, the morphology, the, the, the evidence of, you know, bipedal movement, uh, we're seeing that certainly in these in these Australopithecus, but not in these other examples. Right. Um, but again, you know, there's a there's a question here, and I will bring this up because I think it's really worth exploring. Is that you know, there's been this assumption for a very long time that you know that we all come from this you know quadrupedic you know arboreal like our ape you know they're swinging through the trees and um, all the rest of it. They're around about you know five million years ago. You know, we start to adapt from that more to a, you know, a bipedal ground dweller. But that's not proven. You know, that's something that, you know, we always thought we've been taught it, you know, throughout our lives, so we've accepted it. But, you know, there's a number of, um, you know, of anthropologists that are sort of challenging that, saying, well, there's not really any more evidence for that than to say that we came from a bipedal human-like creature, which then gave birth to these two lines, you know, the chimpanzee line and our line. You know, that there is, there's no real evidence to say. And in fact, if you look at the way like chimpanzees and gorillas and stuff move, the, the knuckle walking, it's very unlike other quadrupedic beings, and it looks more like a bipedal animal that has regressed to quadrupedal walking. You know, when you look at them, they don't walk in the way that cows and sheep and other other quadrupeds walk. You know, it's, it's quite a peculiar movement. Uh, and that, that when you really think, you think, well, hang on a minute, yeah, there's no particular reason why we can't be from a bipedal human-like ancestor. Did you find any evidence of any sort of aquatic ancestry when you were doing your research? No, but I mean, I can see that I can see the argument that we've spent time in in marshy areas, you know, and this idea that we're sort of streamlined for water, and that you know we've lost our hair, and um, and I, you know, I've listened to some of the debates on that, you know, but again, I I appreciate the the dangers of us being in water, that you know crocodiles and stuff were, were always around that you know it wouldn't have been necessarily safer to be in a water area than it would be for us to be in the savannas and you know i'm sure that we spent some time you know foraging in you know in swamps and whatnot but yeah you know there's some pretty big crocodiles back then didn't they you know these enormous crocodiles that could just swallow you so i mean i i, I guess there'd be a natural fear of being in that in that water for any you know long period of time i'd be surprised if that we We'd chosen to, you know, live in in that water for a period because we're not very well suited, you know, to being in deep water. Um, so no, I, I don't see that. That's a, a very convincing argument that we've spent, you know, considerable periods largely in water. I think we, if anything, we would have foraged in swamps. Hmm. Yeah, 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 I've seen I've seen the, the yeah. I, the see, I picture cake. I like to picture more like swimming on the beach. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, well, 
I mean, we may have spent some time, but again, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm not keen even now with all the sharks, and the, especially, I'm in Australia, you know. Yeah, I don't here, go in the ocean. You me in the beach, you know. <laughs> Anywhere you are in Australia, it's pretty dangerous. I mean, certainly the north coast, you know, they've got saltwater crocs, deadly jellyfish, sea snakes, you know, <laughs> just this long line of deadly animals. It's like, I think I'll just sit on the beach. Yeah, you know? if I lived in Australia, uh, I don't think I'd leave my house. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure about the aquatic ape theory. I guess that, yeah, it may have had some small part to play. But I think, yeah, that we've been shaped more for, you know, being on land. You know, the, the fact that we are bipedal tends to have more benefit, I think, in the savannas and, you know, seeing the, the prey that's ahead of you, when rather if it's under the water or, you know, if your enemies are under the water, it doesn't necessarily give you a great advantage. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, so my wolfen theory is no good. Darren's got this. We've been arguing about this theory that wolves and wolves and dolphins have the same hips or something like that. <laughs> so he thinks that that's some sort of proof. Hey, I, I don't know the uh, what the animal would have looked like that became, you know, that gave rise to the dolphin. I mean, obviously, supposedly, you know, it was a, a land-dwelling creature and it returned to the sea. But yeah, I, I don't know what it looked like. I can't imagine they look very wolf-like. But um, I don't know. Who knows? I, I really don't know what they what they think that that pre-dolphin creature looked like and whether, whether it shares oh, some of the they get, So that's where they get it from. See, I didn't get that, that they went from the land to the water. Yeah, like when I say that a dolphin yeah. still has hip bones, I'm not joking around. They're there, but they're just not connected to anything. They're just there. In yeah, that's body. right. They've still right. got yeah, the, the finger bones and toe bones. and so, The same as the whales, you know, both dolphins and whales have returned to the sea. That's that's the claim, anyway. See, so maybe we got, like, halfway back to the sea, and then fucking too many of us got eaten by crocodiles, and we're like, nope. <laughs> Come back to land. See, yeah, I mean... See, the problem I have with all this evolution... Why do they return to the sea, it? It's a strange one. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, all this evolution, this from species to species and us changing species. Like, I don't think there's enough evidence for that. It's not changing species, though. It's all just different paths. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of different lineages. And in a way, that's something else that I do tackle a bit, that, you know, that... It's like a giant family the meaning of species versus lineages. Okay, that, yeah, let's talk about that. That's a good way to... That, that'll help me here, because I can't... Yeah, I mean, I think, because, you know, for example, we, we often say, you know... The, there are many human species. I mean, this is a, a, a fundamental part of, Whoa. you know, hominin research <laughs> is that we have these, these many hominin species. But I say, look, if you are into breeding and you're having viable offspring, i.e. that your offspring can then breed again yeah, yeah. and give, you know, yeah. then you are essentially the same species in yeah. terms of the popular meaning of the terms, you know, the word species. Which, which is to do with breeding. Um, and as far as we can see, the different human you know, lines have, have always been able to interbreed, i.e. they are different lineages with different morphology <laughs> rather than true different species. Um, and we see that in other animals. I know that the, obviously the lion and, and tiger can have these um, ligra children. And I, I'm given to understand that I think it's that the males may be infertile, but the females can breed still. Um, yeah, so saying, there's definitely some breeding problems. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so I mean, there's certainly but... the breeding problems. I believe there, you know, there are instances where you know, certainly one one sex. I don't know if it's the male or female that can sometimes still breed. So I mean, there's an argument to say that they are the same species, but they're, they're, the lineages have separated so far that they've accrued so many mutations or adaptations to different environments that, yeah, one of the things that they've picked up is a, a, a breeding problem, you know, that they can't right. 
easily produce those young. So there's a point when lineages pick up so many changes that, you know, one of the things that goes is, you know, the, 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 I guess the compatibility of their genes. And so then we can start to say, well, they've become different species, even though clearly they're members of the same, you know, family. You know, we'd, so we can see a tiger and a lion are, are obviously closely related. Um, but yeah, they do accrue these these issues. Um, so in evolutionary theory, and obviously you're, you're referring to this, the larger problem we have in evolution, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of of gray area and a lot of holes in the theory because, of course, we don't often see, you know, a, one form giving rise to another species. It's yeah. not something that in, a, that in our, in the time that we've been, uh, re, you know, recording scientific observations that we've said, oh, well, we've seen a number of these things happen. When we've seen certain things that have happened, you know, like there's, um, what called Darwin's finches have yeah. grown larger beaks, you know, or, 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 you know, significant adaptations to the environment or to, to you know, climatic shift when you say oh well you know it's now it's got a much larger beak than it had yeah. a couple hundred years ago yeah. so we do see you know significant changes in form but we don't tend to see entire new species arise um and i would say there's also there's other problems there because i mean if we look at something well, i'll take an example there's the the tarantula that is preyed upon by a wasp i mean that's a strange relationship to build up in terms of when we figure out evolutionary advantages and stuff because you know Going for, you know, specializing in laying your egg on a, a predator that can kill you, potentially, like is a, is a really strange, you know, thing to arise by natural selection. Because you'd think the stupid wasp that, that wants to lay its egg on a tarantula is the one that should die off and that we should have these these other wasps who lay it somewhere sensible and that that they win the day. You know, so we have these really strange relationships that have built up which which don't necessarily fit what we'd think of as as, you know, the best idea winning the day. And like how does that relationship start? Because when does a wasp first think, hmm, you know, I'm gonna start laying my eggs on that predator. And, well, and I mean, so we, that we have kind really, of stuff opens up so many different kinds of worms. Because then you talk yeah. about instinct and how does that wasp even know how to do that? And that, yeah, that just gets crazy. It does get crazy. And I, and I think, again, that goes perhaps into the other subject area that you cover, you know, with the consciousness research. Because, you know, I think that there's something far more weird and wonderful going on in the background that's that's controlling all of us, you know, if you like animals, um, people, you know, the, the, the lower levels below physical matter, the the programs, if you like, rising from consciousness, you know, the or the or as um, I think Hammerhoff said in your friend, more like the sim the symphonies yeah, the, yeah. the music of, yeah. um rather than programs. But that yeah, certainly that, you know, there's there's more to it. And some of these things just seem to emerge rather than evolve, you know, that these like, and, uh, I mean that's another like know. Sheldrake's thing, like morphic resonance and all that. Like it seems to get into that hundredth monkey. Yeah, or something yeah, was, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I, I still do, think, I think like, a lot of those evolution problems could iron out if we could be looking at shit for more than a couple of hundred years, you know. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we have got limited, you know, we've we've got a limited bank of information there in terms of, you know, the genetic research and stuff. You know, we're really in the early days of that. Um, and again, I think because the materialists have kind of held us back in some areas that, right. you know, with this prejudging that everything has to be their way that you know once we start opening our minds a bit to how these relationships form and how these changes happen you know again i would say evolution itself in my opinion is being driven by consciousness i, I don't think you can explain these shifts to new species which i believe are real but i don't believe that they can necessarily happen in the way that 
current science is telling us that it's all about natural selection and adaptation because those tend to just change the form of an individual you know of a type uh, within a species but they don't necessarily easily lead to a new species i think that there's something about the way consciousness works that it's choosing to make its vehicle you know change that it's changing the the vehicle in in a a profound way at some points you know it decides now i will change this form you know and i make that sound like it's a person talking but i don't know maybe it is a strange as, a, as an entity making that decision or maybe it's a bit more abstract than that but i do feel that that's something arising from the consciousness level the quantum level i don't believe that we can explain these profound changes of a species that you know that we came from a mouse essentially something like a mouse-like creature you know that's the argument that you know humans have arisen from those first small mammals you know something akin to a field mouse and like look at us now i mean that's an enormous shift and like you know if we kept mice you know for millions of years we would always expect to see more mice being born wouldn't we i mean logically (laughs) that's a good point yeah we don't tend to see that the mouse suddenly one of them's got you know (laughs) Different. It's got finger. Now it's got fingers instead of little paws, and you know it's there's something profound happening. And, and they do have you know many generations of mice have lived since humans have started you know looking at mice into in science. And but we don't mice. see that. Yeah, we don't see any example in that species that seems to become more like a new species. They all remain mice. So no matter what environment they're in, what country they're in, you know we're not seeing that that happen. So why is it that? That, that this one group of mouse-like creatures has gone through so many profound changes that it's ended up being human beings. I mean, I, I find that problematic. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it seems incredibly unlikely, and we haven't seen strong evidence for that happening. Um, and again, that's where I would say that we have to look at things like morphic resonance, and we have to look at consciousness driving evolution, um, and we have to start looking outside the box if we want to make you know a really a meaningful suggestion to how this happens, rather than just saying that, well, the mouse went into a new environment and it changed, because the mice are always going into new environments and they're not changing. Yeah. Well, 65 million years is a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. You know, and again, like I'm not saying I'm absolutely right, but I just, I, I suspect that, yeah, we have to look beyond simply, you know, that a new environment requires adaptation. I, I think that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, the other problem is I still haven't found anyone who could explain to me how Canada was all under a mile of ice 15,000 years ago. Not even 15,000. And now every fucking pond in Canada is full of fish. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that argument. If you the Fortean argument, isn't it, that if you, if you dig a pond and leave I've, it, eventually ex- fish here. I've explained this to you, Darren. It's, it's birds getting fish stuff on their feet from other ponds and flying over and... They sure work fast. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's just because life is a staple. It's just if the conditions are there, it just happens. Yeah. yeah. That's the sort of 14 ideas. I have heard that the Russians used to, to build these ponds and they just trust that the fish would appear in them. Now, I don't know if that's true, of course. They, 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 they hacked them in. <laughs> build it and they, they will come. <laughs> I like that. That's right. You just throw it in, they will come. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. I mean, I don't know whether that's obviously is the case. Probably the, the, the fish dropping or even maybe the rains of fish, of course, which we do happen as we know that there's these mysterious yeah. rains of frogs and fish. So perhaps every now and again, you know, one of those rains of fish will fall in your pond. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get, let's get into your, uh, into a little bit more depth into your paradigm. Sure. Um, so, 
so what's what's more of the difference between uh, the start of your timeline with, uh, I guess, I think that's kind of where we left off as far as like your research specifically to this book goes. Yeah. So what happened was I was basically I was researching um, a site in Ecuador. Now it's it's been given the name the lost city of giants in some of the media, but um, I would just say basically it's a megalithic site in the Amazon, um, which is can't be easily attributed to any known culture. Uh, and I became caught up in this in 2012. And this this is really what has led to this because the site, the only the clues that are attached to the site basically led me to to investigate a group of people called the Lagoa Santa type people in Brazil. And the Lagoa type these Lagoa Santa type people are essentially Australoid or or appear to be related to um, Aboriginal Australians and Papuans and people from that region. And there's this mysterious history in America that suggests that there was a colonization event by this type of, you know, human around about 60,000 years or so ago. Now, this 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 itself undermines part of out of Africa, you know, because there's not supposed to be anyone in America at that point and certainly not Australian Aboriginals. Um, so that's where I kind of came into this was, you know, to try to understand how that could be possible. Um, and that led me basically to do a, a reanalysis right from the beginning. So I'm a bit OCD, I'm probably a bit autistic, and I, I like to start things from the beginning. So I mean, rather than just uh, someone else would have said, well, okay, let's look 60,000 years ago, what's going on, you know, in terms of migrations and, you know, what's going on in Australia and in South America. You know, I'm like, no, I, I have to start millions of years ago uh, from the beginning and kind of logically follow this through because of my, my OCD, yeah. which is which is kind of good because obviously that's led me to a number of other other sort of discoveries which undermine the theory as well. And so I, I went all the way back, found out that yes, in, you know, in fact that we could be, you know, related to a, a, a primitive human-like being was the first one. Then of course that these Australopithecus were 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 Homo was the next revelation that came out of that. Um, that led me to understand that a number of of human lineages or these human species on the family tree should not exist, that we need to really cut off. Well, in the end, it's going to be quite a lot of of human species, probably about a dozen um, that need to go, that, uh, that my, my research invalidates. Um, and then we get up to well, around... Well, let's, let's, let's expand that a little bit. What do you mean by need to go? You're cut, Graham. They, they <laughs> must go. Yes, they need to go. Um, for example, uh, let me think, Homo habilis. 2.5 million years ago, supposedly the first Homo. Yep, is that a uh, Homo habilis. No, that this is tool using man. He he was uh, the first uh, one of Leakey's discoveries. He's supposed to be the first you know hominin that used tools in Africa, okay. um, and you know he's supposed to be essentially a direct ancestor of Homo sapiens. He has to go because we now know from discoveries at another site, which we'll come to um, in Georgia. We now know that Homo habilis and a number of other human forms of the ancient past are actually variety variations of Homo erectus. That Homo erectus had enormous diversity within the species or within that lineage. So, as you'd see today, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, like if I if I take a um, let's see uh, an African pygmy and we take um, perhaps um, I don't know a, a Mongol 
you know, guy, and we take somebody else from, you know, maybe down in the, the jungles of South America, and we, we compare these people. We're going to see, you know, some really stark physical differences, you know, um, whether it's in height, build, the, the structure of the face. You know, there's there's an awful lot of diversity within our current human species, right? Yeah. Um, whereas in the past, people have seemed to assume that there wasn't. And so every time they find a new skeleton, there's a temptation to say, well, I found a new species. Look, look how different it is. Well, the problem is that we now know that there was massive diversity within Homo erectus. And so in all of basically almost every hominin from around 3 million years ago to a little, little after sort of two, a little after 2 million years ago, more recent than that, um, should probably be categorized now as Homo erectus. And so, so all of these hominins in that large cluster there uh, are, are really invalidated. So everything between um, Australopithecus and Homo sapiens should be Homo erectus. Basically, I, I give them two. I mean, I say there should be Homo australopithecus at the beginning. And then I think that around about 2.5 million years ago, we see the emergence of, of early Homo erectus. And that from then on until about, mm, I suppose up until about a million years ago, roughly, we see Homo erectus, essentially. So, I mean, there's this, this almost singular line. I, I'm not going to say that there's no offshoots from that. There, there, there probably are some examples which we could say, mm, perhaps that's different enough that we'd say that's a species. But there's only going to be maybe one or two that remain as possible separate species you know there's such a different lineage that we can say oh maybe but really most of them most of them have to go that's okay I see, I see what you mean yeah. that, that's yeah that's, that's again that's a huge rewrite because when we see these pictures of the human family tree with all these branches and and i think that that's wrong i think we have to call that out and say look you know that's not supportable anymore right at what point do, do you think that? we cross that boundary into something different like you mean where like back? now if you dropped like most of the human race into the elements they'd probably mm-hmm. die within a couple of weeks what do you what's your, what are you getting that like like at what point do we come a different uh, like a homo sapien something beyond I, I don't think that we really yeah, because that. once like does technology change it well, not really. I mean, we had the same technology for a very long time, you know, from, if you say 3.3 million years ago, you know, we had basically, you know, stone choppers. Yeah, I think know, the, when uh, we were handling yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, so from 3.3 million years ago, we had that up until probably, you know, within the last million years. I mean, we we had, you know, a, some adaptations that, you know, we had, you know, we started to have bifacial blades instead of, you know, single-faced blades. And, you know, we, we made better choppers and, and whatnot. But, but again, that's over a vast period. I mean, you know, when you talk about a million years, isn't it? and you think you're like, you know, our, our civilizations, which have been around for technically about 6,000 years, you know, I know that we've had past civilizations. That's a, another subject. But, yeah. but in terms of the rise of, you know, Sumeria and, you know, Egypt and in our 6,000 years, you know, we can see what we've achieved. But I mean, but when you think, you think of 6,000 versus a million, and I mean, there's, you know, that's a long time, you know, and it's to say you're using the same tools for, for a million years. I mean, you know, we weren't really very adaptive in that way. We didn't, you know, we weren't producing a lot of technology. We weren't really worried about, you know, getting a better chopper. It's like, yeah, well, I can chop my meat with that. That's fine. I'll, you know, I'll give it to my kid and he'll chop his meat with it. There doesn't seem to have been that spark in in the mind to really do much. 
so I don't think that the technology changed us very much. Um, it's, it's, I mean, really, it's not until, you know, after over two million years of, of doing much the same that we even start to do anything different. Um, and I'd say that that's near to that point where, where the Homo sapiens type, you know, arises, which is around a million years ago. Um, and I'll just quickly give the, the background to that. So, so we say we have this, in my view, we have this emergence into the world of, of these early Homo, at least, at least 3 million years ago. Um, again, we're going to hear some controversial material here because fairly recently there's been a discovery in India at a site where they have now found um, stone choppers um, in situ alongside bones that have um, cut marks. Yeah. So this, this place is Homo in India around 3.3 million years ago, the same time as the earliest tool use in Africa. Now, this is something that hasn't been well publicized, but when you, when you sort of you ponder that for a minute, it's like, well, so then at this point, what is the basis to say that we emerged in Africa? Which is, again, I, I don't go into that particularly in the book because at the time I hadn't happened on that piece of information. But, but that in itself is a game changer because now we can't even say that the earliest signs of Homo are in Africa. They're equally in Asia. Exactly. So, wow. So, so we have this problem. But then, anyway, we see this expansion around then that these um, Homo erectus essentially seems to be the main wanderer. You know, we find him up in Georgia 1.8 million years ago and also in Africa around the same time, about 1.9, 1.8 million years ago. Uh, down in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, that area, similar time, around 1.8 million years ago. Again, though, most likely he's expanding from that same population that we're now seeing in India. And there's every chance that Africa is being colonized from Asia at that early stage. We, we no longer can say that, that, that these are all coming out of Africa. So this is, again, is, a, is, a, is a, an uncertain area as to which way, where are these people coming out of? Are they coming out of Africa or are they migrating into Africa from Asia? Um, so again, the landscape is completely changing. And beyond that, though, we see by, by around just shy of yeah 1.8 million years to 2 million years ago we have homo erectus spread across the world um the next significant development in this timeline from my research would be around about a million years ago down in southeast asia we see a a, a crucial event happen uh, and that's the first journeys on watercraft and, and for me that's wow. a, a big leap you know because until recently it was only accepted that Modern humans, you know, fully modern animal humans, uh, were able to sail in any sense. You know, and that was around 50,000 years ago that they sailed into Australia. And that is supposed to be the first time, you know, a human got on a, any kind of watercraft and sailed. Now we're seeing that there were some kind of hominins able to travel around in the islands of Indonesia and get to Flores. And we know that the, the Flores was always cut off from mainland Asia. So before anyone sort of thinks, well, hang on a minute, you know, sea levels were lower, you know, people walked there. It's like, no, no, there's really deep trenches in that area. It's never been, you know, one mass. So somebody somehow makes about, well, they argue about, I think it's about three or four journeys it has to be to get to Flores. Um, one of them about 100 kilometers, you know, at sea, and manages to get there and found this, population of homo florescensis hobbits, hobbit right? people yeah. yes right uh, and Their we have tools there from over a million years ago so 
you know, we don't know that the oldest tools are associated with the hobbits. They may be Homo erectus tools or they may be tools from somebody else. But certainly that the first hominins arrive on the island over a million years ago. So we've got somebody that seems to be now to sail a million years ago. So that, that is a profound shift, you know, from 50,000 years ago, the first sailing to a million years ago. Oh, wow. There's so many questions. So the, uh, so I think I just wanted to summarize this. So the homo, the homo erectus that you're talking about, kind of more of a broader category, I guess, is what you're thinking. But there, there's still a bunch of different, um, would you say races within that? Like it's still large, lineages. large variety of lineages under like homo erectus, right? Yeah. Like, for I mean, example, Distinct yeah, forms. Yeah. So, for example, like the three million year old African compared to the three million year old Asian or Indian. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a different lineage, probably. Yeah, because I mean, for example, if you look again at Homo erectus in Africa versus in Asia, for for quite a while there was the belief that we we had two separate species. That there was that there was um, yeah, Homo erectus was basically the the Asian form, whereas there was you know a Another, another form in Africa, which was has gone from my mind for a moment now. But yeah, it was given a separate name basically, and that they assumed that these two forms were were two distinct species. Um, and now it's better accepted that you know, oh no, actually, you know, these are the same, but they just had enough physical difference in the in the structure of the skeletons that there was this belief for, you know, a considerable period that we were talking about two separate species. Okay, okay, so, yes, yeah. we, so we certainly we had these distinct lineages across regions, but that now we realize that it was like today, yeah, that we would have, you know, distinct lineages across regions that, you know, we can look at um, an American Indian and compare them to, you know, yeah, I guess like a, a Tibetan or something. And we can see that they've got adaptations to where they are you know if the mountain people have adaptations to that environment and you know plains people have their adaptations so yeah it was it was more like that that you know you you could see there was distinct differences enough that if you saw those two skeletons you might think oh are these two different species but we know today now that those would both be just modern humans right so yeah the same the same the same existed back then so how how does then then like denisovans and cro-magnon man and, and neanderthals fit into this just as far as the the uh getting away from like the homo erectus like is it does that fall into this those same categories or is that a separate uh line well again if we follow on from a, a million years ago because we're getting close to that yeah. so we've got these We've got these people that have made it to Flores. You know, something special's going on because, okay. you know, obviously people have started to sail. And I'll just add there that, you know, it's hard to imagine a group of people coming up with this idea of watercraft and of traveling and, you know, repopulating a distant island without some form of communication. And I, I, I think that we have to, at this point, say that they are able to communicate because I don't believe you can convince your group just to go, you know, oh, oh, water, oh, oh, you know, and you all start swimming wildly <laughs> towards that. You know, there's something complex happening at that point. And I believe that they are able to communicate. They're communicating the idea that something better is over this dangerous water that is worth trying to get there. And that, you know, we can construct this project together to move our tribe to that island. You know, there's something going on here. Like, there's like an awakening of the mind. Yeah. So we've got, I think we've got communication. I think we've got watercraft, um, and the tools are starting to, you know, improve. You know, they've also got fire use by now. So we're starting to talk about a fairly um, 
similar beings to us. And then, then a, a key finding in that region as well, which is a bit later on. I mean, I'm, I'm going to flick ahead and then back because okay. they've, they've found a shell in Indonesia, which is over 500,000 years old and it has a sort of a, uh, like a, basically engraved with a some symbol symbols on it, which looks rather like um, what they call crosshatch, you know, lines, cross lines with another lines through the middle kind of, so it's crosshatch patterns. Um, and that, so this shows that also there was abstract thinking by 500,000 years ago in that region. So, so we know that somewhere in that time between a million years ago to half a million years ago, we even have abstract art appearing. So obviously there's something underway here in that region. Um, but the other thing about these these people in Flores is that they've crossed the Wallace line. And the Wallace line is a really important geological border between all the flora and fauna of Asia and that of Australasia. And that the idea is that once you cross the Wallace line, which has some really powerful currents moving from the north down into the south, you know, so so it's, it's always stopped, you know, life spreading across, more or less. You know, some small animals have made it across, like rats and stuff. But um, that once you cross that line, you are very close to Australia. And that there is an argument that once you are across, there's no reason why you wouldn't move into Australia. And now you see you've got this vast continent just down to your southeast that there's there's literally no reason to believe that these hominins would not have moved into Australia. And this is a, a controversial um, area, which some scientists are now recognizing. They're saying, well, look, you know, if we say that when humans crossed the Wallace line, they went straight into, down into Australia. And, and now they're talking about Denisovans haven't done the same because the Denisovans, they know there's interbreeding in that area, which we're going to come to. So there's every reason to think that, you know, if these early hominins a million years ago made it across the Wallace line, that they also made it into Australia. And that's we're heading towards, obviously, where my theory goes. Uh, and that is that basically that they were in Australia, and that probably very close to a million years ago, at least, that they were there already and spreading across the continent. We had something like a Homo erectus on the continent. And then we see around about 900,000 years ago to 800,000 years ago, we see um, a sudden, very fast evolutionary changes occurring in in these early humans. And this is where we start to see the emergence of the, the, the three better known lines, if you like, Neanderthals, Denisovans, and Sapiens. Oh, okay. they, they, they all begin to diverge around this time. We now know that because of there's been um, a couple of discoveries in the last few years, which have basically um, really redrawn the picture for us. Because you know, until recently, it was believed that Homo sapiens diverged away from Neanderthals about somewhere around 400,000 years ago. 500,000 maybe. Uh, and up until then, we shared this ancestor, most likely a Homo erectus-like ancestor. And then we started to split um, probably you know, somewhere. Um, well, Neanderthals have tend to be thought of as a Western Asian and European species. And, you know, that we'd split somewhere, but somewhere in this line, you know, around that 500,000 years ago. And that they went off and became this sort of Central Asian and we were in Africa. And, you know, all this, this started to change because we now know from a site in, in Spain where they've, at the, um, I think, was it Cima de los Huesos site in um, in Spain, where they basically, they found these hominins, which they thought were a, um, well, they, for a while, they thought they were unique, that they were actually called the, you know, the Cima hominins. Um, and then there was also f thinking that they were Homo heidelbergensis, which was believed to be the ancestor of both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And this is another important area that I have to talk about, because anyway, because this, this site has really, changed everything because after analysis, you know, of the DNA and of the fossils, eventually they came to the conclusion that, that these were ancestral only to Neanderthals. 
and that Homo heidelbergensis is also only ancestral to Neanderthals. And uh, with that, we lost the the only, you know, sort of well-accepted precursor to modern Homo sapiens. Um, and we now know that, in fact, the split was much earlier. And th- these beings are like over 500,000 years old. And they started to realize that, hang on a minute, there's there's too much evidence that the Neanderthal evolution is well underway by 500,000 years ago, that, that this is this split is much earlier. Oh, okay. And they now believe it's, they think it's more likely to be around about 800,000 years, 700, 800, maybe even longer ago than that. Because the second study that was done, which was a, a comparative analysis of European fossils, mainly teeth and jawbones. Um, and this this project was specifically to find the ancestor of Homo sapiens. And so they took all of these fossils in Europe and they looked for evidence of, you know, of our evolution there. And what they eventually found was that all of the fossils in Europe are relatives of Neanderthals. They're ancestral to Neanderthals only, and that there is no signs of a Homo sapiens ancestor among these fossils. And that, that the same hominins in Europe have populations in Africa. So Homo heidelbergensis, erectus, you know, and these forms are all supposed to be African and European. And they, so they thought, well, if, if you haven't got any signs of it in Europe, then you haven't got it in Africa either. So with the one fell swoop, they've removed this possible ancestor. And they've said, like, heidelbergensis is an ancestral Neanderthal. And that the second thing in this other project was that they, they feel the split is as early as a million years ago. So there's already this divergence that Homo sapiens as a lineage, a distinct lineage, are, are already off on their own by around, I'd say, 900,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago. Um, more support is coming from that with an analysis of Denisovan remains in Siberia. They found that the, in terms of the genetics, that the two lines have begun to diverge by at least 800,000 years ago. So this is a really well-supported divergence date. You know, it's becoming clear that around this time, we see the the emergence of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and Sapiens as distinct lineages. Where again, I, I'm going to sort of take this towards is, of course, that I say this is happening in Australia, and certainly in Australasia, um, and to some degree, perhaps in Southeast Asia, but mainly in Australasia. Um, and that's there's a lot of evidence pointing towards that. And what was the third the third one? There was the split uh, the Denisovans, the Neanderthals, and. Well, there's uh, the Sapiens, and then there's there's also other lineages. There's, um, for example, there's a mysterious, what we suppose we can call hominin X, um, that is known only through evidence in the genome at the moment. But they found, you've probably read that they found, you know, evidence of mysterious fourth human species found among Papuans um, was a headline in a number of articles that came out in the last year. And they found that there's basically, yes, if you look at the people of the island of Guinea, Obviously, now Papua New Guinea, and you know, means split down the middle. But the island of Guinea has um, a very peculiar population in respect to its genetics because they, yes, they have um, the usual levels of Neanderthal, which is around about two to three percent of the genome is Neanderthal genetics. But they also have up to six percent of what it seems to be Denisovan genetics. But amongst that six percent, there is evidence that there's at least two forms. You know that there's Denisovans and a cousin of Denisovans that is closer to Denisovans than it is to Neanderthals, um, but again is distinct. So they have at least three forms within, and I'm going to say they, they probably have more, and there's a reason for that that we'll come to later, but that they have at least three forms there. I mean, this is, this is you know, quite mind-blowing. You start thinking, well, so how many of us, how many types of humans were there down there, you know? And I think there's an awful lot. I think that we're just scraping the surface at the moment. Um, 
but you know so we've got these these various forms that have split off and this is you've got to think as well this is really kind of unique in the whole the whole timeline because it, it looks like for a very long time we have essentially you know more or less one line you know we have um this fairly clear movement from what i call homo australopithecus to Homo erectus, you know, and then it's only around about 900,000 years ago that, that suddenly we get these multiple distinct lineages starting to spread off. So it's, so it's, I think something very odd and something very different is happening down there. Um, but anyway, it's the first time we really see so many distinct lineages, I think, emerging, you know, a very similar time in, in the same place. And it seems to be... So was there any court, is there anything that happened back then, any geological events or any astronomical events that might have happened around a million years ago? There is, there is one, actually, that I, I briefly discussed in the book. We know that somewhere around about nine, was it, no, sorry, a little bit over a million years ago, between 1.2 million years ago to around a million years ago, there is a catastrophic die-off of humans across the planet. We don't know what caused it. But we do know that, you know, humanity was on its way to extinction. Um, and that with a, with a much smaller population, you do get something called the founder effect, which sometimes leads to, like, unusual mutations mm. spreading rapidly through a small population. So um, it would certainly perhaps boost, you know, the, the changes in a small group. And if you had, you know, a profound mutation happens to occur at that point. Especially if there's it's a different go, environment as well. <clears throat> Yeah, you know, if they move into new environments and there's a small population, maybe the climate has changed as well as yeah, part of this yeah. die-off. You know, we're not sure what the die-off was. But, you know, so something unusual has happened and it has reduced the population. And then not that long after that, you start seeing this divergence happen. So, I mean, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So I mean, if we can ever find out what that event was, you know, that may help answer that question. But we know that around 800,000 years ago, we see the fastest observed increase in the brain size, uh, the fastest changes in our physical form. Um, so there's an awful lot seems to happen around that time, the same time as we see these lineages emerging. So something really profound is underway at that time. So speaking of, of changes like that, my probably one of my favorite chapters of your book was when you talked about Toba and the eruption. Um, mm -hmm. when was that again? And, and then can you talk a bit about what you found like with that? It's because it's, I think that's something that people sort of forget about how, incredible that was to the earth sure yeah it's a it's a leap forward so i mean i'll just say that yes if we let me think what's the best way to yeah you can get into that, that later so, if you want to finish your thought now on this other stuff well yeah i suppose i mean if i, I take it forward from so so if we have these lineages starting to to split eight hundred thousand years ago mm -hmm. um and again remember this is um 600,000 years before was supposed to have emerged, you know, right, in terms of right. out of Africa theory. So people just sort of keep that contrast in mind that I'm giving the human line an extra 600,000 years of evolutionary time here. Um, so an awful lot is going on, you know, an awful lot more than, than we've ever really paid mind to. Um, but yes, yeah, so we have at some point these these lines would start to move out into the world. And the way I see this is I believe that um, you've got to keep in mind as well that we're in ice age time. So prime real estate on planet Earth in these periods is around the equator. You know, you don't want to be too far north, too far south. So one of the areas that is, you know, is very attractive, of course, is that Indonesian like the Indonesian islands, um, Southeast Asia and Northern Australasia, right? So you're going to have the major population centers up there. You know, the people are going to move north up 
you know, into those regions. The oldest lineages would be up there first, I suppose you could say, or the most dominant. I, I suspect that what we have is Neanderthals, or the ancestors of Neanderthals moving up into into East Asia um, and parts of Southeast Asia, you know, that, and that then we have across Indonesian islands and also in Southeast Asia and in Guinea, which at the time was joined to mainland Australia, that we have Denisovans. Um, and then further to the south, we have the larger grouping of Sapiens and that these essentially, they have their own territories, which, you know, we can imagine, you know, they've got different lineages, they look different, um, they're going to you know, bond together, they're going to have their own tribal regions. And so if you imagine for a moment, yeah, we've got basically Neanderthals at the top, then we've got the middle Denisovans, then we've got our Sapiens. So we're starting to see this kind of break away into separate, you know, groups. Um, and then this this kind of sets us up for what you're talking about with the Tober event, because you know, if we sort of move move forward, you know, leap through time, and obviously I, I'm, I'm not going to discount that in this time other groups may have wandered off elsewhere into the world, and that's, that's I think, quite likely. But the main collection of humans is there until around 200,000 years ago. 200,000 years ago, there is a climatic shift which causes, again, another one of these sort of mass extinctions. And, you know, humans, again, are clobbered, you know, and taken down to very small numbers. And I, I see in my data evidence for a migration out of that region at that time west towards Africa. And this is the first of the into-Africa migration events. Um, and I argue in the book that basically, yeah, that the founding of Africa occurs at that point. And this is when, you know, you start to collide with the mainstream because they say, yes, you know, Homo sapiens first appears in Africa 200,000 years ago. I absolutely agree. I do agree with them. But I just say they walked in because, interestingly enough, where do you see the first Homo sapiens in Africa? Do you know off the top of your head? No. In South East Africa. Africa. No, in East Africa. The first, the first Homo sapiens, what they call Homo sapiens adultu, the archaics, they appear in East Africa. The, the later, you know, fully anatomically modern humans seem to appear, yeah, in South Africa around 70,000 years ago. But the, these very early ones are in East Africa. And so if you were going to walk into Africa, where do you hit? You hit East Africa. And, and they're right there, right where you would enter the continent. In fact, you know, if you cross what they call the, um, the Babel Mendes Straits, basically from the Middle East, you, you cross into Africa and you end up bang smack, really, where these finds have been made. Uh, and so this, again, raises a problem, because why is it that, we can't, that they, supposedly, you know, we originate there, we've, we've, you know, we've taken over the continent and we've migrated out. Why is it all the finds seem to be concentrated in East, East Africa? Why aren't we finding all these ancient finds in Central Africa and West Africa? It's a big continent, isn't it? There's plenty of room there. So, so if we're not, like, flooding the continent, if there's not evidence for us all over the continent, you know, there's something a bit funny about this idea that we had to migrate out at that point anyway, because it seems like we had an awful lot of room to move around in. And yet there's this concentration in East Africa. And again, I say this is because we've walked into the continent at this point. Um, so 200,000 years ago, the founding of Africa, but there's also humans that have remained in Australasia. So this is the first of the important inter-African migrations, but it's not the only one. Because then, of course, yes, later on, there's this enormous event, 74,000 years ago at the best dating, um, the Lake Toba supervolcano rumbles into life and produces the, the largest recorded you know, volcanic eruption of the last couple of million years. Um, absolutely you know, catastrophic Um you can imagine it's, it's, it's equivalent to a nuclear winter. You know, the the temperatures plummet. There's, you know, rains of sulfuric acid. There's um, 
you know, total devastation of plant life, animal life, horrific. Now, where have I already put? The so, wait, sorry, what year was that? That's about seventy-four thousand years ago. Okay. And so, where are at that point the biggest concentrations of humans? In my hypothesis, they're right there next to the volcano. You know, they're in Indonesia, they're in Southeast Asia, and in North and Australasia. So they are directly in the path of this this destruction. You know, so uh, in the immediate aftermath, the people on what was then called Sunda, the Sunda Plate. Um, you have two plates, Sunda Plate, Sahul Plate. Keep in mind here that the sea levels were over 100 meters, you know, lower. So you've got a lot more land in these areas. Um, Sunda was a vast continent. What we see now is that the lower part of Southeast Asia, this little, you know, string of land going out into the sea was was an enormous plate. So you could have easily had um, millions of people living on it, technically. I mean, I'm not saying they were, but you could have supported a vast population. I mean, think today, how many people live in Southeast Asia on much less land? So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah enormous populations. So, I mean, we, we, we're talking about potentially an enormous population living on this under plate. That lines um, up when, with, uh, uh, what's the one, not Atlantis, but the other one? Isn't Lemuria, that right where Lemuria, Lemuria should have been? Well, they say yeah, Atlantis and Mu. I mean, I, I I've avoided discussion of those names, but only because you know they are they're problematic, aren't they? You know, yeah, because yeah, people totally. just say, well, you're pulling these names out, but you know, until you prove the civilization exists, how can you name it, um, and all the rest of that? But yeah, it, it it lines up essentially with this lost civilizations kind of model, whether it's Atlantis, Mu, you know, that we start getting this idea that you know a a land that was lost to flood and catastrophe um, and this echo down the timeline, you know, it certainly, it gives you a, a, a real world model for yeah. that kind of instruction. Yeah. And you're you know, talking, the, what was your, what was, what were you saying? The um, sea level went up like 500, you know, at least a hundred meters. That's a lot. Yeah. You can imagine, I mean, a huge amounts of land were lost. I mean, particularly in that region, I think it's, I understand it, the greatest loss of land at the rising, at the end of the ice age was in this region. I mean, this plate was enormous. The South, and Aust Australasia was much bigger. You know, there was far more land around Australia. So, I mean, these two plates, you know, between them, they lost vast amounts of land. So, I mean, under the water there, there's no doubt huge amount of evidence of i think of human life in that area and we know that humans tend to be coast hugging certainly in the past they were coast hugging you know because the easy access to to fish and to you know um, it tends you tend to get more rain around the coast as well so you know, if you're relying on you know plant life as well usually you get you know fertility you have access to water you know we tend to be coast dwellers partially so, so yeah so the evidence goes under the water um and this destruction event you know yeah it would have literally white clean most of you know southeast asia i mean the the understanding is now that really um the main effects and obviously there's an immediate surrounding totally destroyed you know you've got the rapid flows of magma you've got the rapid flows of of burning hot gases um then you've got the the, the rains of you know sulfuric acid you know the immediate environment is destroyed they think wiped clean pretty much of all life you know nothing could survive as you move out you know uh, further away You've got the after effects. You've got these roiling clouds, you know, the, of dust, huge amounts of dust. You know, we're talking, I can't remember the figures offhand. I can probably pull it up, but, but certainly an enormous amount of dust is, is going into the atmosphere and it's blocking out the sun. It's moving to the northwest. So anyone living in that 
line of fire, you know, basically up through Southeast Asia into East Asia, across into Eurasia, most of Eurasia, is getting the brunt of this, you know, as it moves, as this cloud moves into the atmosphere and it starts to roll around the northern hemisphere of the planet, there's a huge temperature drops. Um, they know from ice cores that some places fell like 13 degrees, you know, um, and this is in an ice age. I mean, there's there's areas that would have just become totally wow. inhospitable. Um, and so you've got You've got basically anyone who is to the to the northwest or north really as well into the west of the volcano, you know, is is in, in dire trouble. They're probably going to be wiped out or they have to move very fast. You know, there's there's immediate migrations, you know, the rain would come black, you know, you'd be like, you know, we've got to go, you know, things are dying. We can't drink the water. You know, it's if you were lucky enough to get some kind of warning, you know, you would move or die. Yeah, um, yeah. So you've you've lost you've basically lost whoever was living in that region is dead. Then you go to the south, the effects are less. So anyone who was down below Guinea and down into Australia, basically northern Australia, I think in Guinea would have been severely impacted. They might not have been wiped out, but they would have been severely impacted. Um, probably mega tsunamis, earthquakes, all the rest of it as well. Um, so as you move further south into Australia, they had. Uh, survive they it was survivable there you know they wouldn't have had that same impact because of the direction of basically of the dust clouds they were going northwest so in the end the, the whole northern hemisphere of the earth had this blanket of dust you know it starts to move up the atmosphere and it spins around as you know the movements of the air currents in the end the dust cloud spreads out and is covering most of the northern hemisphere of the planet so consider again as well that the the you're in an ice age. The best place to be is the equator anyway. So it was already hard up there. Now it's pretty unlivable. Um, and so the, there's two areas where humans are surviving. Because I've already put humans in Africa 200,000 years ago. You have a community of humans already there, both Homo sapiens and Archaics. There's probably still groups of Erectus and you know some of these others that are still there. You know They haven't necessarily all died out just because we've appeared. Um, but any, any groups of those that moved south would be all right. They only need to walk south, so so they don't get, you know, that hugely impacted. Certainly the North Africans, the far north, they probably were wiped out. Um, but as you move down to the south, they're all right. So you can get a, a movement of humans in towards South Africa, which, as we know, is basically where you find evidence of, of Homo sapiens, you know, fully modern humans around 70,000 years ago, as you, as you mentioned earlier, that that's where you find them in South Africa. And that's, I'd say, for that region, that they've kind of moved that way. Um, and then elsewhere, you know, in Australia, you're going to have another group there. And these are called, this is again, the, you have the founder effect. Yeah, again, in play here, when when populations are removed, are moved, sorry, a change to being, you know, very small from being very large, you have the preservation of a snapshot of the genetic diversity of the time. You know, obviously, some lines are completely gone, you know, some get preserved. Um, you lose a lot of the diversity that existed. And in one fell swoop, you may have lost, you know, thousands and thousands of genetic lineages. Um, and so it starts to look like there was less diversity in that region. Africa preserves most of its existing diversity because it is not impacted, <laughs> not strongly. Um, so what we see today for that reason is we see South Africa, people look at the Africans and they look at the genetic diversity and say, well, look, they have huge diversity in their lineages. And it's like, well, yeah. And he says, they do. And, and I, I agree. I, I, you would expect that. It's not because that they are necessarily the founders of all humanity. It's because they were in an area where they didn't lose all their diversity. They preserved it. And also they they would have absorbed 
diversity from Erectus and from other archaic lineages after moving into Africa 200,000 years ago. There would have been some interbreeding with any other line still there. They then get that diversity as well. So they've boosted theirs, whereas in Australasia and in that region, they've lost loads during this Tober event. You know, they're down to a small population. Um, there's forced migrations. So anyone who survives is moving west or south. You know, if they can't go south, they move west. So we're going to have survivors fleeing towards the Middle East and, of course, into Africa. And this is the second into Africa event that around about 74,000 years ago, we see a population of fully anatomically modern humans arriving in Africa. And I'd say in two places, I believe some of them made their way around the coastlines and they entered again across this Babel Mendab Strait into East Africa. But I also suspect that some made their way across open ocean, island hopping, and ended up at Madagascar and then entered the south, what could be the eastern South African coast, where we see all these caves like Border Cave and the, the famous sites of um, early humans, you know, early modern humans in Africa. And that's why we, if you look at the map and you look where, you know, these caves are, they're exactly where you'd expect watercraft to land in Africa if they were escaping from Indonesia. So, and that sea level rise would have been permanent. Well, the sea level rise comes later. Now, this this is still during the ice age. In fact, it got colder after the event, so we had more ice. No, but you're talking, Darren. Are you talking about the sea level rise from the um, from that specific uh, Toba eruption? Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't have had much sea level rise from that because again, there wasn't much ice in that region. So. So we would have seen tsunamis and stuff, but no, not really necessarily. This isn't when the sea level rise happened. The sea level rise doesn't happen until the melting of the ice 12,000 years ago. So at this point, we're just seeing a sort of a catastrophe, which in in some ways, yeah, would would probably build ice in in some areas because of this intense cold in the northern hemisphere that we'd actually see um, an increase in ice. Um, But yeah, there would have been other... There would have been immediate flooding from tsunamis and stuff, but, yeah, right, but we wouldn't right. have seen this permanent rise at this point. And again, you know, major earthquakes, it's quite possible that some of the land did, you know, drop. Because, as you know, sometimes when we have catastrophic earthquakes, whole pieces of land, you know, go under the water or rise up. Um, and so, yeah, we don't know for sure the geological impact on the, the plate. It may have been the parts of the plate did go under the water, yeah. you know, permanently that point like krakatoa Um, krakatoa that's kind of what happened i think i read this book uh, from simon winchester darren you'd be interested in this for how like things repopulate right it was gone and then the lava started rebuilding the island itself and they watched like firsthand here's a new island being formed and how quickly it got populated with birds and and animals and it was crazy like instantly stuff growing on it Pretty much just watching evolution happen right in front of you. Life finds a way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, nature takes advantage of a situation. You know, and that, that, that tsunami that yeah. tsunami killed like forty thousand people in eighteen eighty three. I mean, and you think this is, and as they point out, you, know, you contrast the two. I mean, um, the Toba event was, yeah, it was way bigger. It was yeah. an enormous yeah. disaster. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you, yeah. At this point, you've got this massive movement of you know of people around. The, let me just see. I've got it here. Let me see. I've got. So they they say it was around you know, seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty years ago is what they've dated it to. And just to give you a few of the, the little statistics and bits of 
information for this. So they say the large, most powerful eruption of the last 2.5 million years um, involving uh, 14 days of eruption with multiple eruptions wow. and producing 800 kilometers cubed of ash. You've you got to try and imagine that for a moment. You know, 800 cubic kilometers of ash being pumped up into the atmosphere um, and that millions of square kilometers of land were covered in debris. Wow. So, I mean, this was... It makes these other these other eruptions, you know, look trivial. Um, they think that the magma produced was two thousand eight hundred cubic kilometers. Yeah, that's I mean, crazy. These, are, these are some big, crazy numbers. If you imagine big cubes of, you know, kilometer sized you know, cubes of magma, two thousand, you know, eight hundred <laughs> cubic kilometers. Of magma. You know, it, it, this is an, a disaster beyond imagining. That you know, it's hard to understand how anyone in this region has survived. You know, but um, the, the human race was devastated. There is, you know, it goes without saying because it's just. Well, not even locally, but it's got to affect the whole global climate and everything. I mean, everything would be messed up there for a while, for a few years, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it, it did go on for many years. I mean, it took, you know, it, it took years and years to begin to reverse. I mean, for a while, it it catapulted what was already a cooling period, you know, the, and it made it much cooler. So, I mean, you, you lost a few degrees of, you know, of heat in some areas, as they say. In some areas, it was, it was less, maybe a degree, but overall, the earth climate dipped by a couple of degrees. I mean, and that's fairly profound when you're in an ice age already you know these kind of changes are, are catastrophic they can be the difference between you know plant life growing that year or not growing you know that that last degree can wipe out your main food source um so yeah this was really uh, uh, yeah as i say a disaster beyond reckoning um and that yeah the, the few that were lucky enough to survive on the edges of the disaster in terms of the north and to the west you know yeah well, they would have had to have you know pretty much packed up and run you know scavenging what you can on the way heading until you get away from that roiling cloud that's following you you know it's it's um yes yeah, a nightmare scenario um one of the things that we see there again is that is that also i believe that you know we're seeing some remnants of of these people we call them perhaps the um the sundanese which are these if you're aware of the um what they call the negrito people i'm not sure if you know there's these sort of well, pygmies and and these small, sort of small-bodied black people of of Southeast Asia. You have these Negritos, and they live mm-hmm. on. Well, you've got some in the Philippines. You've got some in Thailand. You've got, you know, there's a few scatterings of these small groups of you know, tribal peoples. Usually, you know, not huge groups, and they are diminutive in size. You know, a bit over a meter, and um, look quite what we'd think of as typically African. You know, very dark-skinned with sort of curly hair and. But very small, and I'm of the um, of the strong opinion that these are the remnants of of one of the the major groups that were, you know, in Sunda. In this, these are the kind of you know the the leftovers of what was at once a larger population group. And certainly in terms of the humans, but they, they, I, I imagine that they are, you know. I suppose we'd say remnants of multiple lineages. I mean, certainly some of the genetic evidence suggests that some of these groups are carrying lineages of not only of um, like Neanderthal and Denisovan, but other unknown lineages that are found in Negritos. So they, they now understand that these are quite unique people. And uh-huh. that it was long assumed that these are Africans, you know, that had, had moved into the region around 70,000, 60,000 years ago, because we know that 
they seem to be genetically isolated, certainly not in the islands, for 60,000, 70,000 years, which is obviously incredibly ancient lineages. And you'd think that they'd be very African. Um, and they certainly look how we expect like African pygmies to look. Um, but ironically, what they've actually found in some cases is that they are carrying very ancient Asian lineages of DNA and that, that it makes them appear to have been very much... Asiatic peoples, and yet they look very much like the African pygmies. Again, I argue that that's because these are the ancestors of the African pygmies, and in fact they're moving west, they're not moving east, and that we've we've got it around the wrong way, that they're carrying these lineages with them, this Denisovan and stuff, yeah. which are coming out of Asia. Um, I'll go on to Denisovans, because obviously Denisovans, you know, you've raised, and they're a fascinating species, and they're not well understood yet, but they're important in this story, because... The Denisovans at first, you know, we've detected them in Siberia and from a few a few bones there in the what they call the Denisova caves. From Dennis, the Russian guy named Dennis or something, I think. That's right. Yeah, like a sort of mystic that lived in the cave. And so they've like named the whole species after him, uh, which is kind of cool. It's so basically like I guess like it's like having I don't know, a kind of tramp living in a you know, cave and also he's he's the like the he's got his name to the whole species i don't know how that happened but you know, i don't know it's kind of funny but, your name will um, live on maybe he wasn't a tramp but it's pretty unfair i don't know but yeah a guy that lived in a cave yeah now they've named the whole species after him um and that basically yeah that's what they found was that you know amongst these bones in the denisova cave there was evidence of you know of modern humans uh, neanderthals and this other species which they found you know, obviously from doing analysis of the uh, just of these finger bones and teeth and they discovered that yeah there was denisovans this whole other human lineage which is another human species i'd say lineage and that they are distinct from us that they've been around for at least you know let's say eight hundred thousand years um and in fact that they actually carry evidence of yet another lineage in these bones, again, which is not Denisovan. Another unknown species has been detected in the Denisova bones, which is a, a point that hasn't been well discussed. But, you know, again, there's more of these lines getting detected. Um, but anyway, so we know that there was this other group wandering around. But the, the interesting thing about this is that when they went to find, you know, wh where's the evidence today of them, you know? So they started doing testing, obviously, on people in that region. No sign of the genetics. So, they, you know, they did tests on Europeans, no sign of, you know, Denisovan DNA in us. Um, and so eventually they've detected that there is Denisovan among East Asians, but at a very low level, like 0.1% um, of the genome of East Asians, you know, is, is a fairly typical figure. Um, and the only place that you find a significant signature is in, like, Guinea and Northern Australia. And, like, that really is kind of mind-bending for the conventional academics because it's not what they're expecting. They want this to be like an, you know, essential Asian hominin, you know, related to Neanderthals. The Neanderthals are European. Denisovans are kind of Central Asian, you know, and that makes sense in their model. But what they're finding instead is that, you know, Denisovans are uniquely seen among people in australasia and like that's a problem because why is that then you know how can that be this is like an anatomically modern human like like us basically and uh, it, it's not in africa it's not in europe it's not up in central asia it's all the way down in south you know down beyond southeast asia right into australasia in fact you know we're finding it. and they also know that um the interbreeding between denisovans and homo sapiens or modern humans happened around about 44,000 years ago. So we know that they were still around until then. Um, by about 30,000 years ago, we think that them and Neanderthals and stuff were, you know, pretty much gone. But this raises another problem. Because 
humans are only supposed to have got into Australia 50,000 years ago, as I mentioned earlier. And at this point, they're supposed to have become completely isolated. So, you know, they, these a few people on their boats have made their way across from Indonesia and, have, and that's it. You know, the door closes. No one else enters the continent um, and they're on their own from then until really, you know, fairly modern times. But how can that be? You know, if 44,000 years ago, they're interbreeding with a completely different lineage. You know, this other group of humans who are considered another species. You know, it's not just another group of people wanders in, but they are. there's this unique interbreeding event going on only on their continent. And it's after the isolation has started. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know how you interbreed when you're isolated, do you? I mean, it's it's usually a fairly, you know physical kind of interactive event isn't it so i mean i don't know how they can do it but whilst they're being isolated yeah yeah it's interesting so 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 technically does that mean that denisovians should be homo denisovians i i there they are homo but this is what we're getting out there really we're talking about we're talking about homo sapiens denisova homo sapiens neanderthal like Homo yeah, sapiens yeah, yeah, sapiens. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's exactly where I, I'd be taking this to. I I don't believe that we're talking about separate species. I think you know, we are we are talking all of these are Homo sapiens. We are all wise man. You know these Denisovans are making complex jewelry. You know they've got this um, bead they found in the cave, which is fast drilled. You know by using what they, I think they call it bow drill. Like you imagine a stick with a, if you have like a, a bow twine on it, twine on it, yeah, Homo sapiens, ladies. <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah, well, there was obviously there's something, you know, there's obviously something going on there. There's been attraction, you know, probably, you know, maybe there's this thing of, oh, well, you know, they look different. But certainly there's interbreeding goes on between all of these groups and that they are having successful offspring. We know they are because their genome's recorded in us. So clearly it's successful interbreeding. Um, and that, yeah, I, I think we all originate in Australasia, all from the same ancestor. We're still able to interbreed, i.e., yeah, we're talking about just different lines of homo sapiens and then we have to stop thinking of completely different species it's the wrong way to think of it yeah it makes it makes it seem like we're looking at this chart here to the imaginative road to homo sapiens where it's just got all the different kind of heights and crouches of all the different lineages all the way up and it's almost like they they wanted us to to think that it's a bunch of different species you know to fit the to fit the evolutionary theory that the the dogma that's there if you rename everyone like that instead of doing what you're thinking which is you know calling it all one type and just different lineages right it's it, it gives it yes. a different uh, a whole different feel and look yeah and homo erectus even if we go back to him he's not really that different to us i mean again if we if we say he can sail his little boats about a million years ago and he's most likely communicating um and is you know by 500,000 years ago probably right we don't know if it's him or someone else but someone in that region you know in indonesia is drawing these patterns and stuff you know, we're, we're talking about people that basically think kind of like us you know that they want to communicate they, they sail you know they can draw they you know they're using their fires and stuff. there's a point where you've got to say in it well it's not really that different to us is it then you know that by half a million years ago you know we're talking about beings that really are pretty recognizable you know um and so this idea that we've recently flared into life as this different unique you know human species really i think i'd call bullshit on that because I, I, it looks more like that, you know, within the last million years, we've been pretty much, you know, 
all homo sapiens, like all wise men or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I believe that there's um, the proto language. And I go into this in the book, as you will know, is that I think that this click language that we see among the, um, what they call the, uh, the San, the Khoisan peoples of, of South Africa, um, that they use these, these languages involve clicks, whistles, hand gestures, and some words. Now there's, there's been a couple of academics who've argued that this is the oldest language in the world and it shows complexity beyond other languages, that we've lost complexity in a way wow. over time, that this is a proto-language. Uh, and I absolutely agree. And I think this is most makes most sense because before we, before we gain, say, the anatomy that allows for complex you know, um, pronunciation of, you know, various words that we would have still been able to make sounds, you know, and we would have heard animals making sounds, replicating birds is one of the key theories at the moment in terms of they think the evolution of language, that perhaps we, we heard these bird sounds and that our first languages incorporated some of these whistle sounds and, um, and that we, in a way, we took our language from birds. And I, I actually, I strongly believe that. And funnily enough, there's, um, if you look at particularly the Aboriginals, so there's, a, there's this tradition that we are the bird tribes, and they say you know there was a tribe that spoke only in bird songs, apparently, um, now extinct or hidden in the jungles. But the, and there, there is these these legends, if you like, or claims that we are bird tribes and bird people. And some of the earliest shamanic traditions are of bird shamanism. I mean, they found now that I think it's the Neanderthals. They wore the no, the Denisovans on Neanderthals, but one of they had these black cloaks, you know, their feathers that they used to wear and stuff. So there, there seems to be this strange intimate relationship between early humans and birds. And I think that we took these whistle sounds and we, we used that as a language you could use in hunting because, of course, if you're making bird whistles and stuff, you don't start or game, you know, for a start. So it's a very useful hunting language. Um, but also, you know, there's a lot of complexity in the sounds you can make, the different whistles and stuff. And we found that with clicking, whistles, animal sounds, and a few hand gestures was sufficient to communicate the kind of ideas you need to communicate a million years ago. Obviously, you don't you don't need to explain things in the intimate detail we do today. Like for me to have this conversation with you, you know, I need to have like thousands of words or whatever, you know, hundreds of words. Um, but for you and I to go and like hunter, like hunter wild pig, we probably don't need that that kind of language, you know, but we need to be able to communicate, look, it's going over there or, or I'm over here and, you know, go that way quietly and like simple, more simple ideas, I suppose. Um, and that that language would have certainly provided that complexity enough for that. Um, and interestingly enough, you find there's evidence of, of this same language in Australia on the, there's some islands out in the, um, uh, bit off the coast of, I think it's off Northeast Australia in that area that there's, there's some islands there where they found that there was remnants of a click language, but it was only being used ceremonially in modern times. And it's, it's now considered a, a borderline extinct language, but it was retained as a ceremonial language by um, like initiated men. Um, so we know that these click language existed in Australasia. Uh, there's also evidence for click language down in the south of Argentina and down in um, Tierra del Fuego. Um, when Darwin was actually down in that area, he noted in his his um, letters that the people there made all these, you know, clicking and guttural sounds and that, you know, they were barely human and all this, that again, you know, what he seems to be recording appears to be the remnants of another one of these click languages. And he's saying, you know, they made all these wild gestures and, and it's like, well, hang on a minute, this is the same archaic language. And the people of Tierra del Fuego have been identified as potential remnants of Australoid people in South America. So again, we're getting closer to this, this fact, I think that, these original 
Australian people who were the founders of language as well. So what's the, what's the type of um, percentage uh, genetic-wise for some of these other some of these groups of people like the, let's say the Negritos or these um, pygmies or even maybe like mm-hmm. Aboriginal Australians or like how, what's their, li- what's their percentage that's like, how high are they of just one mm-hmm. type? Cause I mean, it surprises me when you say like 6% and 2% of um, mm-hmm. some of the other ones that have them, some of them, the higher percentages. So what are yeah. we talking about? And then there's the rest of it, just all these unknown other factors like, yeah, basically, yes. I mean, that's what I, I, I'm leaning towards. I think that at the moment we would keep saying, well, okay, you know, we are, let's say, let's say we find a guy in Guinea and he's got particularly high levels of Neanderthal Denisovan and Denisovan relatives. Say he's 10% yeah, yeah. archaic. So let's say he's got 10% archaic hominin genome, right? And so we'd say, okay, well, the other 90% is Homo sapien, right? But how do we know that? <laughs> Yeah. What's home, what is Homo sapiens? It gets to that point. You got to say, well, what's that then? Because if if the next DNA you know project finds that there's another one in there, and yeah. then the next one finds another one in there, and there's another one, like you know, you say, oh, and then we're three percent this and three percent two, like oh, but we're seventy percent sapien, you know? Oh no, we're fifty percent. Yeah, sapien. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, what exactly. does that even mean? Yeah. In the end, what does that mean? You know, that you know, we are human. You know, we are the remnant of all these species, you know, all these, you know, not species, lineages, you know, we are what's left. You yeah, know, we're some all that mixed, like all the, extinct. all the yeah. races are mixed to a certain extent, it seems like. That's right. All, there's no and pure, the, pure. There's no pure, ancient. and we don't know that Denisovan even looked different to us. I mean, that's exactly another point, because we only have, you know, we've got like, you know, a few bones, you know, some finger bones, some teeth. The most we can say is that the specific Denisovans that have been found in Siberia had big teeth doesn't mean they all had big teeth, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So we can't even say that they were all like big teethed and different to us. <laughs> it may just be that they've happened to find individuals in a population that were, you know, had larger teeth. But Denisovans may have looked almost identical or if not identical to how we look. We don't know that. So, so it's entirely possible that, yeah, we just look like all these other groups looked like and that we incorporate all of, you know, what was left of their diversity and that there was multiple lineages and we could be, there could be a hundred lineages, you know, from that region that, you know, now make up modern humans. Um, and I'm going to say something else about Guinea, which is interesting as well, particularly is that, you know, not many people know this, but, but this one island, you know, has the, the largest diversity of languages on the planet. It has like hundreds of separate languages, hundreds I mean, you've got to think about that. We was like, why would you have hundreds of languages on this one? You know, it's a fairly big island and everything, but that's not normal. That's really not normal to have the, the highest diversity of all languages in the world is by far seen on Guinea. That suggests that once upon a time, there was way more population groups in that region, you know, and that they have been destroyed down to this remnant. And again, I'm saying that's because to the north, you've had a total wipe. If you imagine, you know, to the north has been, you know, you've got this empire of the Denisovans also mixed in with Neanderthals and what we think of as as the Sapien lineage, if you like. But these multiple lineages are concentrated mostly on the equator. So they're all throughout this, the islands there and this major plate, the Sunda plate, which has been rocked, you know, by this disaster. So of course there's going to be different groups and ninjas spread around that area in the first place. And when that happened, you've got just this little group down in Guinea who represent, you know, different little populations within a massive population, you know, and they are the snapshot that is left. Everybody to the north of them is dead. 
basically. You know, there's there's a few handfuls that survive here and there, but you've had those wiped out. And those all had their own variations of language, you know. So so these languages have come down. Some of these languages have come down from the Denisovans. I would say most of these languages in Guinea are pretty Denisovan languages. And that's why I think we find that they're, they're very unique languages in that region. Huh. And, and so many of them. And again, it further supports this idea that we're talking about a you know a founder effect here not only of the genetic lineages but of languages and i think that if we really start to dig into that we're going to find that yeah that these people are talking denisovan oh, now we have emojis that's a founder effect. Yeah. yeah 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 we're, we're getting we're going backwards i don't know i can't is it make it more complex or more simple that we have just Sometimes, emojis yeah it's the internet it's the hard. first language of all cultures yeah we are changing again you know <laughs> becoming and we're post-human next, aren't we? But yeah. so, so I mean, yeah, we have this, I guess, called compelling evidence, you know, in, in multiple areas, you know, for what's really going on and where it's going on, you know. And obviously, my like my model in general is, you know, centered on Australasia. I'm saying, you know, really everything of great greatest interest is happening in Australasia. Um, and so that's, yeah, I guess that, remember here's where I should, should go back to the out of Africa, the out of Africa theory claims that, you know, the migrations that populated the world happened around about 74,000 years ago. So this is the same period. So, so they're saying that's when we came out of Africa. I'm saying, no, that's when we moved out of Southeast Asia and out of this region, Australasia, because of Toba. There's no event in Africa that would make us move for a start. Like, why is it that we suddenly start this migration out of Africa, like 74,000 years ago? Because it's a uniquely, right, this is another thing, guys, it's a uniquely bad time to do a migration out of Africa. Yeah. And now this has been recently come out in a, a couple of papers that basically they've identified as the, the worst um, drought, you know, in recorded, you know, history, whatever is going on in the Levant and the Middle East and North Africa at that period, because you've got Lake Taylor, it's exploded, there's a nuclear winter, you know, it's a nightmare, the, the, the climate is in collapse, you know, and like they say, at that point, people decided to wander off into the Levant and cross, you know, Asia. I don't buy it. Yeah. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And like, like the guy says, this is the worst time to move out into the Levant, you know, these are the leading academics on, you know, paleoclimatology saying, look, this is like the worst time to do it. Like, no one's going to do it. You don't walk from your lands of plenty into the worst drought in, like, history, innit? No one does it. We have to say these are people that think like us. You know, they look that way and they see rolling green hills. They look that way and they see, like, nuclear devastation. Mm, which way do I go? You know, they're not stupid. I mean, you just don't do that. So what we see instead that does make sense is a forced migration of survivors from Toba who are trapped to the northwest and they have to migrate. And so what we see now is what they call the coastal route. They're saying that they think that humans moved from Africa along the coasts of Asia and then down into Southeast Asia and Australia. Yeah. If you reverse that, it makes sense. Yes, these people hugged the coasts probably because you could still get some fish and eat. The inland area is devastated. Um, but, you know, they're still managing to survive in the, in, you know, that tract of just survivable land along the coast. And they're rushing their way, you know, towards Africa. Um, not necessarily knowing it's there. They may do. There may well be legends, you know, of these earlier migrations, which I suspect there was, because yeah, it seems yeah. that the Australian Aboriginals have a very good memory for their stories, don't they? And we know now that some of these stories they tell are accurate you know, depictions of events tens of thousands of years ago. So there's a strong oral tradition. They may have heard, well, let's, you know, there's Africa to the West, run. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So well, what I've heard the, a few times now that the 
Aboriginal Australians are the oldest people on the planet. Absolutely, yeah, and the culture is the oldest. We know that the culture itself goes back, you know, tens of thousands of years. These stories, some of the stories depict, you know, climate changes that happened tens of thousands of years ago or meteor impacts in a certain area, that these stories have encoded information across vast periods of time and that there's no other comparable age of any other cultural civilization on the planet. Um, and again, you know, sort of mention here that if you look at the people in South Africa, you know, if you go down to these, the oldest lineage there, which is the um, the Khoisan people, once known as the Bushmen, but it's a bit sort of an offensive term now. Um, but these Khoisan, they retain some really interesting traditions. For example, one of their um, most revered figures in their in their mythology is a giant serpent. Now, who do you immediately think of? You think of like a tradition, a, a revered tradition of a giant creator serpent. Hmm, let me think. Oh, that rainbow serpent in Australia. You know, it's, uh, and they've got you know the same kind of um, culture going on. It's not there. The things they do are very similar. But this, particularly, um, some of the stories they have, uh, echo stories in Australia. I mean, that one is a key one because we know that that the original telling of that tale is definitively Australian. That you know this culture has is is the most ancient, and it has the most ancient stories of the serpent. And then you have these these other incredibly ancient people the Khoisan, and they tell this this same story of this this giant creator serpent. They have this click language, and then you find in parts of Australia there was this remnants of a click language. Um, you know, they have, on oh, the other question I say is that down in South Africa they found crosshatch patterns on stones. You may know of the, um, oh, the what's it called now? It's gone from my mind. But there's some rocks were found in some of the caves down in Southeast Africa, and they got um, the crosshatch pattern, and it was once claimed that that was the first signs of, you know, higher thinking were these stones and that 70,000 years old or whatever down there. And of course, that's that same pattern that we see on the shell in Indonesia 500,000 years ago. So this is something that's been carried from there. You know, again, the evidence keeps showing the stories, the art, you know, uh, even the, the morphology, if you look at them, they look more like black Asians, like Australasians, than they do Negroids. They're not part of the Negroid population. Like if you take... Um, Khoisan people and put them against Negroid people, you'll see that morphologically they are very distinct and they're also genetically very distinct. Um, so these are the, I say these are the remnants of those Australasians that came in around 70,000 years ago. Um, there's good reason to, to argue that. Huh. And there's more, there's the genetics as well, but I don't know if you want me to touch on the genetics. It's a bit, a little bit heavy, but I can certainly touch on it. That, you know, we find that well, 70,000 years ago, I was going to ask if blood type played in at all, or if there's any correlation in blood types. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's a couple of blood types that are actually missing in Australasia. So um, that in itself is interesting. Um, and we've see, we see some overlaps in Africa, in the areas of Africa, which have the lowest levels of those same blood types. And we see that in, in the regions where the Khoisan are and on this southeast coast, where the, like, near to where these cave sites are. So you have, yeah, correlations in blood type. Um, and then also you have the correlations with, with the, what they call the Y-chromosomal and mitochondrial DNA. Now, if you, if you look at the argument, the out of Africa argument says that basically around about, I see, is it, the emergence of um, M and N as haplogroups, which are two, like what we call founding lineages of all all humans outside of Africa, basically arise from the M and N lineages. Okay, and M and N are considered to be daughters of of L, L three. 
And there's basically there's L0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Uh, and beyond that, above that is L, which we we don't you know have examples of anymore, but we assume it's this this founder lineage of all the other you know lines, which would have we don't know where that was. Was he mainstream assumes that it was in Africa. They say we think most likely L emerged in Africa because we see L one, two, three, sorry, L one, two, four, five, six, all in Africa, very much African lineages. L three is a bit more mysterious because L three, as I say, gives rise to M and N, which is is everybody outside of Africa comes from L3. L3 first appears around about on the edges of, of, of East Africa and the Middle East. And nobody's sure, now even the academics admit they don't know where this first, you know, arose. Did it arise first in East Africa? Did it arise near to East Africa? But what they certainly know is that M and N were never in Africa and, and that those are the founder lineages of all, you know, all of the... Like Americans, Europeans, Asians, you know, anybody non-African basically comes from those lineages, not from the other L lineages, which are distinctly African. So you have immediately there, you have another anomaly, which is, it's, strangely enough, we all come from what we can, we'd have to call non-African lineages. And the L3 is not shown to be an African lineage. It moves into Africa around this period. This is why they say, well, we think, you know, it must be African because there's an expansion of L3 moving west into East Africa, right? And that's a good point, it's moving west. So like, mm, could it be people walking in from the east? They're moving west. It's expanding into the continent. And that, that this is mainstream saying, yeah, it expands west into the continent from East Africa. Again, at that same place where you'd expect people to cross, like the Babel Mendab straight into the country is where we see L3 first. And we see M and N, not actually in the country, moving the other ways, if you like, expanding out. So it's almost like there's a, you know, an L3 group which undergoes some mutation close to East Africa, and the, the lot moving in still have L3, but the other groups that are moving in the other directions, there's some changes occur, probably adaptation, you know, mutations as they change, you know, go to new environments, and they become the M and N lineages, um, and these basically move, you know, throughout the world. The, some of the oldest lineages of M are found down in Australasia. We don't know. If, and also, yeah, there's remnants of like L3 and stuff down there. So, it's, you know, we know that there's very old, and there's no argument here again, that some of the oldest examples of these lineages are Australasian, you know, again. And in fact, there's no argument here as well that the Australasians are considered to be one of the two oldest populations on the planet. You know, the, there's an argument by the mainstream that basically Khoisan people are uh, the oldest, you know, that not, when we talk about Africans, I mean, we should, everyone should think here, I'm not talking about Negroid Africans, okay? They're young, okay? There's there's only one other contender for the oldest people other than Australasians, and that's these these Khoisan, a small number of people down in South Africa, yeah, versus the Australasians. And at the moment, the geneticists are saying, well, we think, you know, these Khoisan are the oldest, and that the Australasians are the second oldest, uh, you know, Europeans, Asians, and other Africans are all much younger, much, much younger. Um, and this is a key point. We have to say this is accepted. You know, there's no argument here. They're saying that already that probably Australasians are around about 60,000, maybe 70,000 years old, but they think they're not as old. Um, and that in some of the samples in the past, it was shown that they were older. But there's, you know, this is a contentious area of debate. Um, but there is there is no argument beyond that. There's just these two groups. And as I say, I, I say they're both Australasian anyway. And I, I don't see them as that distinct. I mean, we're talking about a group of Australasians in Africa anyway. Um, and that we see 
there's a much akin in their in their genetics which would support that. Um, but basically, at this point, Australasia, you know, is in my view, yeah, is expanding out. We've seen this. First of all, we've seen this migration that's followed Toba, but there's a second one because, of course, people have died, right? So if you imagine, okay, yes, there's this lineage has gone into Africa around about that period, 74,000 years ago. There's this influx of migrants, you know, these people that have fled Toba, that they're bringing the L lineages, you know, this L3 into Africa, right? Uh, but what we see later, about 60,000 years ago, is another migration. And this is a replacement, basically, because the continents have been wiped clear. Um, we see start seeing small groups of people moving across from, from Australasia up into Asia. And you can look at this. We're tracking the, like the Y chromosomes and the mitochondrial chromosomes. You'll, you'll see that, basically, um, these lineages appear first down in Southeast Asia. And there's no argument about this. I mean, they, they say it appears that some of these oldest lineages sweep up from Southeast Asia into the rest of Asia, particularly what they call um, uh, I think it's the C lineage, and this was haplogroup C, and that moves across from that area. And again, the oldest examples appear in Australasia, um, and there's even morphology to do with the way we call shovel-shaped teeth, which is um, comes up from Southeast Asia into East Asia. Um, these populations then, you know, move into eventually move into Europe. And they, around about 35,000 years ago, is the, the first Europeans. Um, and obviously, they would have swept up north towards, you know, the Bering Bridge, crossing into America. And so we start to see this expansion at that at that time, around 60,000 years ago. Uh, and this is the expansion that populates the world. So I'm going to backtrack a bit to say this. Is, so basically, we have three migrations, you know, three key migrations in the populating of the planet by by homo, like modern, anatomically modern humans. At 200,000 years ago, with the migration from Australasia into Africa, and then at 74,000 years ago, with survivors of the Sunda disaster moving either south into Australasia or west to Africa. And then after the impact of Toba has diminished, 60,000 years ago, we see this, this last expansion, you know, the the, the true colonization of planet Earth, which then just rolls on until today. So do you think like one of the earlier migrations could account for aboriginals around the world? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we see... Like the Machu Picchu now. people and like Native Americans and... Yeah, I mean, to a degree, I think that what we have in, like the, the American, like we call North American Indians, they say you know, that, you know, they've always been on their land in the same argument that like Australasians have said, look, we've always been here. Um, and I think that that is, there's some truth in that. I mean, I do think that we're starting to see now, I mean, obviously there was a recent news story that you probably saw that humans 130,000 years ago in North America, like breaking open mastodon bones for, you know, for the, oh, yeah, for the marrow. Oh yeah, 130,000, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. And, I actually just wrote there was, that down. There you go. And then also we, we have an older discovery there, Huatalaco, which um, was basically a, a mainstream find that identified human population there in Mexico 200,000 years ago or more. They think it could have been a much older population. Oh, there was, was, there the was so much. Um, they found, yeah, I think there was, there was animal bones, evidence of butchery. There was, you know, fire pits, you know, all found across in this area. And then they had the geologists came in, the archaeologists, everybody. And it turned into a big circus because the mainstream wanted to just stamp it all out of existence. Um, it ruined, you know, the careers of some leading academics. Um, and basically they just, you know, they said, look, this can't be true because 
humans didn't get here till 13,000 years ago and like you're all ruining you know our good name of archaeology and so that basically got like whitewashed um, but we now see that in that context now we're seeing hang on a minute 130,000 years ago someone was breaking open bones just to the north you know up into in like things in California uh, again sort of hugging that warm belt you know of the equatorial warm belt uh, and then down in Mexico right on the equator really um, not far not far off you know down into Ecuador as well they found some Homo erectus-like remains, and there's been a piece of a Homo erectus skull found in Mexico. So there's a number of finds that don't, you know, they're not remaking the press, and they haven't made the peer-reviewed papers, but there are there is significant evidence to show that archaic hominins of some sort were in the Americas. And I think that the American Indians can rightly say that at least some of their lineage probably does go back to these these really, really early humans, probably there at least 200,000 years ago, maybe way earlier. You know, I'm not going to discount that maybe they got in there hundreds of thousands of years earlier than that. You know, we, we just don't know yet. Yeah. But I think that the American Indians may well have at least part of their gen- genome as being these archaics that go back. And that's why they say we've always been here. I think in some respect, they're probably right. They probably do have. And then they have genetics from a wave of Australoids, you know, these um, people from like Guinea and Australia, that have made it into that continent again, probably around 70,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago. Like some of the the oldest evidence for humans down in um, Brazil, particularly, um, suggests that we were there at least 60,000 years ago. So I think that we also have genetic lineage for for um, indigenous Americans that goes back 60,000 years. So again, that would give them some argument saying we've always been here. Because I mean, that's a pretty long time, isn't it? You know, you say you're not yeah, a reason. All the way through the Ice Age, before the Ice Age and through the Ice Age. Yeah. yeah. I'm fucking crazy that's, flood. Yeah. That's pretty close to always being here, isn't it? You know, you can't really say you're a newcomer if you've been, if your ancestors have been there 60,000 years. I mean, again, so they probably have Immigrants. injuries from that. Yeah, your newcomers, you know, and then I think that, yes, then there's later, you know, later influxes probably, yeah, around 15,000, 13,000 years ago that have merged, you know, in each case you have interbreeding and merging. So there's, I mean, we know that some of these tribes in the Brazilian Amazon have been shown to have up to 2%, like, um, Australasian or Oceanian genetics. Um, and like, it's an interesting thing here, because if you look at, there's, um, one, one of the, one of these tribes that they've they found this genetic signature in, you know, down in the Brazilian Amazon. Um, you know, I don't have the name straight to my my mind, but um, basically, you know, one of the tribes that's, you know, flagged up as having this interbreeding um, has this really fascinating tradition, right? Because they have this um, astronomical tradition that when you look up at the, at the you know, the, the Milky Way and you look at that band of stars, they see in the middle of it this um, this local like flightless bird um basically uh, it's a kind of a relative of the emu like uh, it has the same behavior as the emu and all the rest of it and they see this stretched across the dark space in the milky way right what do the australian aboriginals say they say that there's a, a big emu in the dark space stretched across in the wow. milky way yeah. right absolutely the identical astronomical tradition right amongst this these people in the brazilian amazon who have two percent genetics from these australoids so i mean you're not only seeing this flag of that that yes these australians came here but they came there with their culture this is how old this culture is that you know and they've remembered it just like they have in Australia. That they've got a remnant of a memories of fifty thousand or sixty thousand years ago of the traditions that came into the continents. I mean, that's that is astonishing. And there's, you know, to argue that this is a coincidence would be nuts. That you, you, you just happened that they've got the genetics and the same traditions. I mean, 
it's pretty clear now that we have to start rethinking this. Um, yeah. So you have all that going on. And I, yeah, I do think that, yeah, there's America is a fascinating area. And I, you know, I cover that in the second installment of my Forgotten Exodus series, which is mostly written. I have to tidy it up and update it. But yes, I mean, there's there's a lot going on there. Um, I'll t- should I touch on a little bit more of America? Because I guess, you know, obviously people were... Yeah, yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, part of, part of that was South America, I guess, included, right? Yeah, that's right. And I'd say that, you know, from basically the way I look at it is that, you know, this is my research when I was in Ecuador for five years and I was researching this this megalithic site in the Amazon, which is what, as I say, prompted all of this. Uh, what I discovered was that the area where the site exists up in um, basically this is called the Yanganatis National Park, which is people will know it best because it's supposedly where the lost treasures of the... Um, Atahualpa were taken by the Incas when you know when, when their civilization collapsed to the Spanish. Um, basically, the the remnants of their treasure were supposedly carried into the Yanganatis and are hidden somewhere in this really dangerous, vast area of jungles and mountains there. Um, but anyway, it's in that region is where this megalithic site is as well. And I, I believe the Incas went in there deliberately because they knew that this was the land of the the ancestors, the ancients, uh, and it was you know an area sacred to them. And that I think that they used to go into anyway and that they knew about this site. Um, and that anyway, it's quite possible. I think that it's not coincidental that they chose it for that reason at the end that they went into the land of their you know the ancestors and hid the remains of their treasure um but in this area yeah you find megalithic structures and and uh, i looked into you know you know who it could be that built them it certainly wasn't any of the known cultures um i mean again the inca you have to put this in context the inca were in ecuador and in that area for about 50 years i mean you know they were a, a Peruvian Andean sort of civilization. Yes, they expanded, you know, into Bolivia and into Ecuador, but they were only there 50 years before the Spanish came. Now, that's not a lot of time. And, you know, they managed to do a few collaborative building projects with, like, the um, down in, in parts of Ecuador, you've got the, what's it called, Ingapurca, which is Canari Inca, because they kind of allied with the Canari people and built this structure. But there's not a lot of, you know, major Inca structures in Ecuador. Um, so it'd be kind of odd them to build their largest megalithic structure in an area of inhospitable, you know, inhabitable jungle um, for no reason at all. You know, an area they couldn't use, they couldn't do, do anything there. And yet you find this giant megalith there. Um, and the people that founded this area, the nearby towns, if you like, Banos, uh, Banos de Agua Santa, um, is, is the historical record says it's founded by the Lagoa Santa type people. Um, and he says, you know, that they came up up the uh, the river, following the river up from Brazil through the jungles, and ended up in this region, right? And then they found skulls of Lagoa Santa type people in caves about only about ten miles from the megalithic site um, back in the beginning of the last century. So, I mean, I, I know with a, a pretty good degree of certainty that we are talking about structures related to Lagoa Santa type people. And the Lagoa Santa type people are Australoids because the morphology of their skull shows they are Australoid um, and that therefore, you know, and that again, they're linked to these sites in Brazil, the oldest sites, 50,000 years ago. And what is particularly interesting here is that the style of the building, right, is large polygonal blocks, you know, the same blocks that you see when you look at um, the Peruvian, you know, the really old Peruvian sites like... Yeah. Um, Huaman, you know, that we have these large multi-faced blocks, like sometimes six, seven faces that are interlocked, you know, and um, you can't perfectly. 
Yeah, interlock perfectly, can't put razor blade between them, have all sorts of weird effects, look like they've been melted in some places, look like they've been molded, um, all the rest of that. But what you find at this site in Ecuador is that, right? And the, the key here is that unlike at the other sites, you have no, there's no Inca there. You know, this is an inhospitable jungle. It's like in a swamp, like you have to like go through swamps and, and then into the jungle and like nobody lives in the Anganais today. There's no tribes in that area of jungle. It's, it has wildly swinging temperatures, really cold, you know, there's dangerous caves you can fall into, like, you know, nobody chooses to live there, put it that way. Obviously, once upon a time, it was very different, but we're going back like to when the Amazon jungle was largely savannah. So we're going back like Before way beyond. We're going back at least, we're going back at least beyond the 12, that 12,000 year gap, you know, to when the, the last, this great civilization fell. And the interesting thing is that helps to validate another claim, which not only I've made, but certainly others have made, which is that these polygonal block buildings in, in the Andes are older than the Inca and that they're not Incan. I mean, I, I think most people now with a, with a dose of common sense, understands that the argument for these all being Incan is really weak. That, you know, you look at, like, Saxe Roman, and you look at the lower blocks, these enormous, like, 20-ton, perfectly, you know, cut blocks, and you look at the Inca work on the top where they've rebuilt, yeah. and they have these, what looks like to me, dry stone walling that I can do. I mean, I've done a bit of dry stone walling, you know, in the past. Yeah, I could do that Inca stone work. You know what I mean? I could probably, I could bash some stones into, like, those shapes and stack them. You know, that is not really spectacular work. You know, the, the infill pits, you know, that we see today, you know, you look at it and you can see, well, that's built by at least two different cultures. Yeah, yeah. You know, in some areas you see three, you know, in some of them you can see there's three different cultures involved um, quite clearly. You know, you've got the oldest work is the best. Then there's some smaller but very similar blocks built on top, you know, again, there's been repair work. And then you see the last level, the Incas have tried to patch in holes and their work is really rudimentary. Um now, the problem here is that, you know, people have always said, well, the Incas are there, you know, it must be them. But this site in Ecuador, there's no Incas there. There's nobody there. You know, as I say, it's inhospitable and it has the same stonework. Um, I also found, you know, that there was what well, I can, I, I have to call it putty. There was a blue material that when you scraped it away and it got wet because it, it was raining a bit there and it rolled in a ball. It was this ball of blue putty, right? I don't think that we're supposed to have had putty like 12,000 years ago. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we're not meant to have had it. Uh, and there was like concrete holding the blocks, like some sort of, you know, mortar holding the blocks onto this wall and stuff. So, I mean, but um, unfortunately, the academics, nobody has, tr has you, know, you know, gone and hiked in to take a proper look. And so, as usual, it's dismissed out of hand. But um, is that the lost city you know, of the giants? Yeah. Is that what you guys are calling the that's lost right, city of the yeah. giants? Was there anything yeah, that's about, right. about giant bones or anything like that there, too? Or why, why is it called that? Just. The size of some of the artifacts, I mean, there was some very large, what appeared to be like hammer-like artifacts that were found by the um, the Ecuadorian sort of explorers that went in before I went in. Um, they, yeah, they they found a number of large, I guess you'd call like pounding stones, these sort of hammer heads um, that are just so large that yeah, you'd assume the people that used them were very tall or very big. I mean, obviously that's not. It's not enough evidence not to say it really was no. giants. Yeah. No, no, but yeah, yeah. There, there, that's why that name came up. It's just because okay. of the size of some artifacts. Um, but certainly, yeah, the artifacts are of a style unlike any known cultures in the region. They're not, you know, they're not Incan artifacts. They're not, um, 
Panzaleo, which is the, the other culture in that area. Um, I mean, I've seen Panzaleo tools and I've seen Inca tools and, stuff, and it, there's just no comparison. Where you do see a comparison is I've seen specific artifacts there which are identical to some that have been found in Bosnia at the so-called Bosnian Pyramid. I mean, I'm not saying it is a pyramid. I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, obviously there is an archaeological site there and it has artifacts and uh, they've recovered. And like, some of what they've recovered there identical um and also um artifacts that are sighted in the in the snowy mountains in australia there's a couple of pieces that were found there that are identical to pieces that were found in the site in ecuador so i mean we're, we're starting to see a correlation again and particularly interesting there is the correlation between australia of course in ecuador because we're seeing you know these lagoa santa people connected who are australoids we're seeing this evidence of this migration 50 60,000 years ago into brazil uh, of australoids and again, now we're seeing that these the polygonal block structures associated with these ancient Australians. So then you look in and you say, well, hang on a minute. If they built that one, didn't they build the other ones? You know, surely, you know, if they start doing it in Ecuador in these jungles, you know, that they must also be the builders of the ones on the mountains in the Andes that, that we go down to Peru and stuff, that these older buildings are australoid you know constructions if you like you know the, these are the remnants of the first global civilization who um i believe were yeah australian aboriginals does that also so that's, have that's to do with the correlation you're talking about with the symbolism between gobekli tepe and um easter and easter island, island and and then south yes. south Af- south america and uh Aust- australasia as well yeah, that's right. I mean, I've identified, and it's becoming an article in the next couple of months, but um, I've identified symbols at Gobekli Tepe, which, yeah, I, I exact matches for sacred symbols among a number of indigenous Australian Aboriginal tribes, uh, very distinctly Australian symbolism engraved into some of the, the key, you know, T-blocks there. Um, and also the same symbols have appeared, you know, I found out there at uh, sites, uh, Olmec sites, and also in I believe Bolivia at the sites there, and across all the way to Newgrange at um, oh, that's it, yeah. at the site there, you know. And then, so yeah, we're talking about a, the remnants of a global culture and the remnants of global knowledge. I'm not saying that necessarily Newgrange is twelve thousand years old, but you know, obviously they're getting the hand me down the symbols of this lost civilization, and that but they go back to the Gobekli Tepe type construction times, we see that they're already in use 12,000 years ago. And 12,000 years ago, there's not a lot of kinds of people anyway. This is another thing we have to sort of get to because like, the the Europeans, as we think of today, you know, white, like, like Caucasoids, you know, as we call them, they don't arise until around 12,000 years ago in terms of like the genetics. So they're finding that, that even in, in Southern Europe, the people were distinctly dark skinned and, you know, black haired and all the rest of it until around 12,000 years ago. There seems to be an emergence of lighter skinned people first in the North, which, you know, kind of makes sense because obviously we see like, the, you know, the um, Norwegians and Icelandics and those people as, you know, these very, I guess what you call, I guess, distinctly white like races or um, but there's, you know, around about 12,000 years ago. Um, and that before that, you know, in Asia, you've got the first immersion of what they call proto-Asiatic people um, around that time, a little bit before then, you know, over the, I guess, between sort of 
between the colonization, somewhere between that colonization event and 60,000 years ago, that, you know, we start to get a, a gradual shift towards Asiatic people in, in some of the regions up there. But you don't really get Asian people until um, perhaps 20,000 years ago or something, you start getting Asian people. And then what we think of as modern Europeans are emerging later again, uh, and black Africans as well, you know, a, a fairly recent as well, with around that 20,000 years ago or so, um, that these, I'm not getting the exact dates on them, but, you know, they are, in terms of this, they're quite recent. So, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised. When people say, well, who built Gebekli Tepe? You know, and there's all this, oh, could it be these ones? Could it be these ones? It's like, well, there's actually not a lot of people or a lot of cultures in the world at that time. And as we've already got to, we only know of one culture that goes back 50,000 years in its stories and stuff. And that's the Australian Aboriginals. We don't know of any other culture that existed. Mm. That, that should narrow it down, shouldn't it, really? What, about, what are the ones that come from Nibiru? Um, well, you get into all the Anunnaki <laughs> stuff. And yeah, I mean, right. um, no, I, I haven't touched. I, like, I, in my book, I do not mention like Atlantis. I do not mention ancient aliens. But at the same time, I don't discount them in it. You know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not there like saying this is impossible, that's impossible, or it has to be the way I'm saying it. But I'm dealing just with what you know, mainstream scientific evidence. Yeah, and you're and sort of putting discounts. it together like they're not doing, right? I mean, they're yeah, that's like not they're, even they're not you're not even looking at fringe stuff. You're looking at no. mainstream papers and and scientific papers that you're just correlating as well, and and uh, mm-hmm. it's coming to you know you're coming to a different conclusion. It's so we've had we've talked about this on the show before, and it blows me away how long it takes the paradigm to shift. Right, the mainstream itself yes. has evidence that points to a different paradigm, yet they just don't acknowledge it yet. And it's in a whole bunch of Absolutely. different areas. Absolutely. And it's and it's surprising. As I said, I've, I've sat here sometimes and I watch, um, you know, a YouTube of maybe like leading geneticists involved in this area and they're presenting their data. I mean, there was one recently with presentation on um, the first large-scale genetic analysis of Australian Aboriginal DNA. And that revealed a lot of surprises, you know. And the guy is there and he's like, and um, he looks kind of almost sweating, you know. He's like, and, uh, yeah, we don't know why that's like that. And uh, it doesn't quite fit. And, uh, you know, it looks like he wants to just turn it off and say, I don't want to do this, you know, because, you know, he's having to sit there and he doesn't know, he doesn't, he can't fit it in. You know what I mean? He can't fit it into the models that they're trying to desperately, like, keep going. And he looks almost like, yeah, he's almost like sweating. You know, this is like a top geneticist, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, I feel like coming up and giving you a little hug and whispering in your ear what you should be saying or something because, you know, it, 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 it's, it's kind of sad because these guys are, you know, these are the greatest minds on the planet. I mean, make no mistake, I I am not saying that I am the new Einstein or or Darwin or whatever, you know, I, I, I'm not a genius, you know, yeah, I have a reasonable intelligence, but I'm looking at these guys and these are our best minds and they're there like reduced to just like gibbering rubbish to us because they won't just admit, look, hang on, this, this whole thing doesn't make sense. You know, the emperor's got no clothes. Someone point at him and say, like, he's got no clothes. You know, let's start again. You know, this is this has gone completely wrong. We're just propping up a big pile of rubbish. It is, it's got to, I'm, not, I'm sympathetic. I think that it used to be the best model. I'm not going to say it's a big conspiracy. I know people say that yeah. it's all conspiracy and, you know, we've been high. Oh, they want us to believe uh, out of Africa for sort of conspiratorial reasons. Maybe there are some people that do, 
Like, don't get me wrong, I don't know, maybe there's some people that agenda does suit. But I think most of these scientists, yeah, they just, they grew up in that paradigm. They've been told that this is the model to work with, that they expect everything to fit into it, and they, they keep trying to hammer, you know, round pegs into square holes. And when they don't fit in, they kind of drop that information and they focus on what does fit in. Yeah. And that's why we're getting this really sort of shaky version. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but... For people out there who want to get like a really clear example of where this is nonsense, um, there's, there's this ongoing persistence that you know Australia was first populated fifty thousand years ago. You know that that's it. You know we have you know that most of the sites are fifty thousand years old or younger, which is true. Most of them are, and they say that you know that once they arrived there, you know basically they burned the boats. Nobody else came. You know it's. Just, just them, and for a long time. And you know, first of all, I should say that it used to be twenty thousand years ago, and then it was thirty thousand, yeah, then it was exactly. four. Now we're up to fifty, and they're saying some say maybe sixty, with evidence that they'd split from other humans by seventy thousand. So you know, it keeps going back. But like, for whatever reason, they keep saying, "Yeah, fifty thousand. That's when they 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 got there." Um, and then slowly, they they made their way around the coasts of Australia, which is an enormous continent. Let's not forget. It's, bloody big you know and they made all their way around the coast until until they ended up meeting down in the south the far south and then they started to spread inland and so about 30,000 years ago you know you had a migrations into the the interior the more inhospitable interior of australia and you know the first sites appeared there now that that kind of it makes sense right on the face of it okay you say yeah okay you know so you've had 20,000 years they gradually these hunter gatherers migrate you know around the coast then they meet then they start to move inland well then they found that there were sites that were 49,000 years old in the interior down in the south right it's like well, well, well now we know what happened was that they arrived and that they ran super they split into two groups they ran super fast they all ran they spread around the coast in a thousand years they went into the interior set up these sites you're like Ah, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. So they just changed the whole theory. Yeah, it's like you're willing to change that bit, but not the content. The greater content must stay the same. It must still be out of Africa, a fifty thousand year inroad. Even if you have to throw all of your other work in the rubbish bin, like even the common sense of it has to go in the rubbish bin because otherwise we'll undermine that fundamental out of Africa paradigm you're working in. So the only way now is to say these people ran down, you know, they, they sailed as fast as they could for no reason into Australia when there's, keep in mind, most of the world is empty, right? You know, so they've raced from Africa 70,000 years ago. Within a couple of thousand years, they've raced all the way along the coasts of Asia for no reason because they're supposed to be hunter-gatherers that slowly move when they need to get more, you know, food or when animals that are often, in fact, you know, we see today hunter-gatherers cycle between three or four pieces of land next to each other and they just wait for the resources to recover and they move again, right? That's which is really sensible, but no, no, no. But instead, what they did, they ran into this, you know, terrible climatic event as fast as they could, running, running down to Southeast Asia. They build the first boats, you know, they sail across, burn the boats, and now they, they split into two groups for no reason. Remember, there's about two, they think the first colonization was about 200 people, the first colonization of the whole world. So you've got 200 people. They split into two groups, right? That seems nuts, doesn't it? There's hardly any of you. You've, you've entered apparently a new continent. You don't know anything about it. You don't know what dangers are. Let's split up. You go that way, we'll go this way. And then, like, running as fast as you can, you know, to the south for no reason, past all these resources. And, like, in the end, you've got to say, someone's got a cool bullshit on that, and say that that just doesn't make any sense at all. It's nonsense. 
like it's even nonsense compared to what they were telling us two years ago or a year ago, yeah. you know, which made much more sense. Now it's gone into this thing of, well, we now know that in a thousand years, they populated the entire coastline of Australia, which is enormous. It's just a small group of hunter-gatherers and they've met in the South and they've run into the colder interior into these arid lands for no reason and they've set up camp. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, but this is this is rubbish. This is total rubbish. And um, and we know it's rubbish because not only that, we, there are sites that are older. They found um, one of the leading geologists, in fact, the guy who discovered Mungo Man, which is like the oldest human remains uh, in Australia so far known, which is at least 43,000 years old. Some argue 50, 60,000 years. But even if we take their conservative dating, 43,000 years old near Lake Mungo, they found tools there which seem to be up to 55,000 years old. Um, there's a site up in the north, which um, they believe also is up to 55 to 60,000 years old. Um, they found shell middens, i.e., like you know, where people were cooking, eating shellfish, on the east coast of Australia, seventy-five to eighty thousand years old. And this is the same guy that found Mungo Man, who's an out of Africa theorist, also found these shell middens. And he's gone very quiet about this because he doesn't want to be one of the guys that helps undermine the theory he supports. But he identified them as being eighty thousand years old. Um, and then two separate projects looking at. Um, Paleolithic environments found evidence of mass burning of, you know, forests by humans going back over 100,000 years. They found evidence in core samples in the coral reefs, and they found um, other evidence, uh, two different sites, basically, showing, yeah, like people were doing, you know, fire stick farming over 100,000 years ago. Um, so, I don't know, at what point do you just say in it, like, it's, you're wrong. Like the theory is obviously not, it's not supportable. And that, you know, it's very clear, you know, what's happening. And, and on top of that, if we go back to the Denisovans, you know, and we know that we interbred with them 44,000 years ago. So they had to be on the continent with us. We can't be isolated here like 50,000 years ago. It just is not supportable. And like they're saying that, well, the breeding must have happened somewhere near Australia. And I, I say like where, like in the sky above it, <laughs> under the sea or, you know, like, it's happening on the land, on Australia. There's no other signature of this interbreeding. International waters. Yeah, I mean, like, where is that? You say it's somewhere near, because they don't want to say it's in Australia. So it's somewhere near, maybe it's in Southeast Asia or... But, but it's not, isn't it? Because the, the signature is in Guinea and in Northeast Australia. That's where the people carry the, the genetics. Right. These are the people that have that ancestor. It's happened there. And, like, what's more, they found um, recently, they've, they've realized there's a, a huge... Um, what do you call it, like a genetic division between the peoples of northeast Australia and Guinea and those to the west and to the southwest. It's in fact, the difference between them is, is as great in terms of genetic diversity that, you know, as the difference between um, North American you know, tribes and people in Central Asia, like in Siberia. You know, vastly different places, you know, way, way apart, big, big time span between them. But they're seeing the same level of difference between groups spread across like an imaginary line in northeast Australia and southwest Australia. But that's that's nuts, isn't it? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And they say this division seems to arise somewhere around 45,000 years ago. Right? Well, hang on a minute. Isn't that when we see this interbreeding with Denisovans? So isn't this division made more... Bear in mind, this was one landmass, that the sea had not come up yet. We still have one landmass. There's no division between Guinea and Australia. So this is just one land. What would make that division then? Well, perhaps because the people there are considered to be a different species, different race. You know, they're they're that's Denisovan territory, and we're you know these other humans, and we keep separate. But at this point, something happens which changes, and some humans merge with them. But the other lot, they say, well, no, we we consider you now like 
tainted. Well, isn't that back to Toba then again, possibly? I think it's to do with, I think that the fact that these Denisovan populations have collapsed to such a small level, that prior to that, there is strict rules, if you like, in interbreeding, that the different groups don't want to interbreed. And that's why we see these long periods without interbreeding. But that after this, these populations have collapsed and you start to see perhaps a necessity for interbreeding um, and that these populations only survive really by merging with the dominant lineage, which would be, I guess, closer to what we'd think of as anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens or whatever, that these remnant Denisovans, in the end, whether it's an invasion or what it is, but a group of of us, if you like, or modern humans, um, have merged with these Denisovans, probably because of, yeah, the after effects of Toba 70,000 years ago, have left this much smaller population and that now it's been kind of annexed. But, but these other humans to the southwest look now at these two groups that have merged and say, well, you're all untouchables. You know, we don't consider you having become more human. You know, we consider the humans coming more Denisovan. And therefore, this, this, although there's this one period interbreeding up there, I think the rest of the continent maintains a very strict interbreeding law. And they, they, even the academics have suggested we think that this division must be something to do with taboos with interbreeding because there's no geological division. There's no other reason we can see why there would be this distinct huh. difference between these two areas. And But they don't seem to put two and two together. And that's the thing where I'm just putting two and two together. I can see, well, well what would that division be? Well, we know that there's interbreeding 44,000 years ago and the division is arising around then. Yeah. So, And we know that the Australian Aboriginals have some of the most intense interbreeding laws known on the planet even today the complexity of their interbreeding rules is just mind-bending i won't even go into it because it's there's so many subgroups and so many rules that you know a snake clan can't merge with you know um with a dingo clan or whatever you know it's, it's and then there's subgroups of that family groups where you can't marry certain families and you know so we're talking about people that have a a recognizable taboo on interbreeding you know mm. so you can imagine how strict it would have been about a group which they didn't feel was even of their type you know yeah, of their people yeah. so, so they would be like hey you lot have broken the taboo you know stay up in the northeast and we want nothing to do with you and so again we're seeing more and more of this this direct evidence for what's happening so what what happened to cro-magnon man he was around for a while did he get chucked in the trash then because he didn't fit or well, I think now they're starting to accept that Cro-Magnon really, he's just like an anatomically modern human that right. that we gave, we gave him this name, you know, but really he's just one of these slightly different... Homo sapiens like, kind of? Or? Yeah, the build of his body might have been a bit different. Like, you know, they said a bigger, a bigger brain and, that, you know, perhaps he was more stocky than us. And But that really, yeah, he's just another, like, variant of Homo sapiens. Um, but much closer, I say, genetically closer to you and I than, say, a Denisovan, but, you know, he may have had some distinct features, um, adaptions for Europe and whatnot and for the cold and stuff. But, right, right. No, I mean, again, I think this is being annexed into just, you know, archaic humans. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, when you look at all this together, I mean, it starts to make a lot of sense. And I don't know if, I don't know if you know, but, I mean, if you look at some of the finds as well in Australia, I mean, particularly like um, in the Willandra Lakes region, which is near Lake Mungo. This is an interior area of dry lake beds, so huge dry lakes. So we know that this is an area that once was, you know, essential to life in the interior because you have huge lakes, like sea-sized lakes almost, um, where people and animals would have, you know, gone for water. And we find a lot of, you know, hominin remains, human remains, basically, in that area, um, and tools and whatnot. But one of the strange things that you found in, in Willandra Lakes region is that some of these... Some of these, um, the bodies or, you know, the fossils of the humans are really unusual. I mean, they found there's, what is it, Mungo Man, who looks like 
a very tall anatomically modern human. He would be like he walked down the road in in Europe today. You know, you wouldn't know his Mungo man. He's of the same sort of build as a, as a typical European. He's about two meters tall, almost. Yeah, so he's he's a he's a tall chap. And uh, surprisingly, because obviously in the past we see a lot of small people, but he's very tall. He's forty, you know, forty something thousand years ago. Um, Gray style. One of the distinguishing features is his skull is about two millimeters thick, which is thin by modern standards. We're about six millimeters, seven millimeters on average. So it's a very thin, almost paper thin skull. Um, nearby, Landra Lakes 50 hominin, um, who was younger, about 20,000 years old, I believe. He has a skull uh, about 20 millimeters thick, you know, which is one, one, one researcher described as being like having a motorbike helmet, you know, as a skull. <laughs> I mean, I mean, imagine, you know, if he headbutted Mungo Man, Mungo Man's head would explode. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's really that vast a difference, you know. And that, and then you've got near to there, you've got um, another group, you know, which was they call was it the um, another another one of these lakes, but anyway, not nearby. Anyway, they found some more. Um, oh, cow swamp. Sorry, the cow swamp people, and these, you know, have like the biggest brow ridges known in our species, you know, bigger than Homo erectus. They have elongated skulls, uh, again, very thick skulls. They have like what are called archaic traits that look, you know, make them look more like um, humans a million years ago um, than modern humans. And they're, they're only like 15,000 years old, right? And so it, this starts to not really make sense because, you know, up the road, You've got a guy 40,000 years ago who looks like he could walk down any street in Europe and not be noticed. 15,000 years ago, you've got another guy who yeah. you'd think he was a, you know, he was yeah. a Homo erectus, yeah. something yeah. on Neanderthal. Yeah. I mean, so that that kind of variation is, is not seen anywhere else in the world. There's no way you'd see that, you know, if you, it's like you crossing, you know, to the next, the next city from you and the people look like Neanderthals. You know, you'd say, like, well, the, the variation in our area, in our, in our state is, is incredible. You know, look at the people <laughs> in the next city. I mean, you don't see that in Africa. You don't see that anywhere. So, I mean, in Edmonton. <laughs> so, <laughs> that area of huge diversity. I mean, we have a few in the southwest of England. I think some inbreeding that leads to like, <laughs> strange diversity in the population. But oh, I mean, yes, certainly, I mean, it's, yeah, it's abnormal. I mean, have you look at it, it's abnormal. I, I asked one of the leading academics of um, what we call the multi-regional theory, which is a competing theory against out of Africa. And, you know, I said, well, do you think these could be Denisovans or part Denisovan? He said, well, that is possible, yes, that we might be seeing that these features are Denisovan features and that where, you know, it's been absorbed into the population that, you know, these people around Willandra Lakes, they may well be carrying remnants. Now that we know that that DNA is in the population, perhaps they are what Denisovans would have looked like. I mean, we can't be sure, but certainly these are Homo sapiens. I'm going to say that these are not. You know, everybody that we have uncovered in Australia, all of the the skeletons would be considered members of the Homo sapiens family. Right. But the, the the actual the, they're not. You know, I'm not saying these are Homo erectus, but the the look, the morphology is is so varied that it shows that we had enormous genetic diversity on that continent, which is doesn't make sense if you say that. A very small founding population crossed from Asia fifty thousand years ago. Um, you know, probably a couple hundred people or something. You know, and that they are the founders of everyone. How can we then see this kind of diversity where even in a small region you're getting people that are completely different in the way they look, um, and that they, you know their skull thickness, their you know, brow ridges. You know, it doesn't make sense if you had just a small group of founders. We should look 
very homogenous. You should have everyone looking almost the same, and you don't find that. And again, we find that, as I said earlier, the, the divergence between the north and the southwest, and you know things that you wouldn't expect with a small founder population isolated. Um, it's not adding up. Huh, that's interesting. So, what do you, what do you, um, what do you got working on next after besides the uh, Into America book, which is next, right? That what what's after yeah. that? Well, I'm most likely going to tackle this. I think the fall and rise of civilization around the uh, the turn of the ice age with this um, events twelve thousand years ago, which I know we've touched on a little bit here, but yeah, that's when the real sea rise happens. The hundred meter sea rise. I mean, it's already underway, but by you know twelve thousand years ago, we get an increased speed of this sea rise, um, and I believe that at that point we have the fall of a past civilization obviously in a rise of another i mean of course that's not a new theory and i won't be the only person writing about it i mean obviously there's there's umpteen writers that are written on this theme um and i will overlap with some of them of course i mean i agree with there's a couple of different books out there which you probably know graham hancock's got one on obviously um magicians of the gods which yeah. he deals with this the fall and the comet impact um robert shock has got one which um you know he deals a bit with this as well but he said he says it's not a comet it's uh solar events i mean you're probably aware of this there's a kind of a, a disagreement there between the two of them yeah um yeah. We, whereas, just had randall, you know, we just had randall carlson on um last weekend and we did a little video one with him where he showed a lot of the climate change from the past and we talked about the comments and all that kind of stuff so yeah and yeah he's worked great i mean I, i've seen him talking and i know you guys had him on and yeah he's, a, he's a really knowledgeable on the subject and like you know i think that it's for me conclusive that there was the comet impact um and i i don't have any argument against i i believe that that happened and not only from the evidence we're finding now but you know i'm a bit of a geek and i've read a lot of ancient texts and i know that the descriptions of the this comet you know appear across the planet in ancient texts and and i think this is perhaps where robert shock maybe is a bit behind because you know there, there is not only is the evidence support the comet in terms of the physical evidence the platinum layer and you know and obviously the this other geological evidence is arising, the nano diamonds. But I look at these traditions, you know, I look at these old texts and, and I'll tell you what, I mean, the descriptions are so ominously the same as what we'd expect now. Now that we understand this event more, I mean, if you look at Graham, I'll go this very briefly, but Graham Hancock explains that there's this cometary body that um, basically um, when it's not heated up directly by the sun, it kind of goes dark. You know, this is this tar-like, you know, um, petroleum almost like, material which heats up to the surface covers it hardens and it goes black you know like almost like a you know, like a tar um and then it you know we don't see it so this black huge black body swings around and then when it heats up this stuff kind of blows off and it you know turns back into a comet but the thing is when you, when you i didn't really notice it recently because when you read some of the ancient texts and there's a there's a few out there that talk about this but there's one for example the colbrin book um there's another which let me think it was that the that, Let's just say, anyway, there's a number of these ancient texts which describe this, this thing, the destroyer or the frightener, um, and it comes in, Warm this water. roaring beast. And one of the things about it is it drips like oil down onto the land, and they describe this black, you know, tar-like fluid, you know, falling from the skies. And I always thought, that just sounds like nuts. Like, what the hell is that? I mean, you know, are they making, is this, is this real? Is this made up or, you know, exaggerating? But, but when you start to understand that this thing is full of this, this tar-like material. There's no way these people could have known that, you know, when they've written these texts. Even if you said some of these texts were relatively modern, like, hoaxes, because we've only just, like, come to that understanding in very recent years. 
And like these texts, you know, at least some of them go back, you know, some go back certainly thousands of years. Others, you can argue, people say, oh, they're recent, they're, you know, in the last couple of hundred years or something. But, you know, there's no way they would have known this sort of detail. They described you know, this body coming in, this roaring sound and, you know, pieces coming off and, uh, you know, it's causing, in some of the texts, you know, the stars fall from the sky, which obviously we see in the Bible, you know, a third of the stars fell from the sky, which is a, which is a pole shift. There's no other way to explain that other than that, you know, seeing an axial pole shift, um, that this thing is, whatever it is, is so devastating that it, you know, it's raining this tar, it's causing fires, it's, you know, the sky is roaring with this sound. And that now we're starting to see that these are real world effects of this this body, you know, this commentary body, and they probably would be accompanied by other pieces. What they say, you know, that the frightener came in, but it it's these other bits were hitting us, but the the the, the body itself didn't necessarily hit but it went so close that it caused, you know, massive destruction and then other pieces hit us. And I believe that, that yes, that these are accurate. I think there's accurate descriptions of this event. And I think that we were knocked for six um, and that then we began to recover. And this is where I, I suppose I, I have a slight different perspective to both um, like Graham and shock. And shock. Yeah. yeah. That because I say that, yes. And then, probably related to the incoming of this event, the sun is destabilized and that we then see this plasma events, that these are also real and that it's not an either or, it's both. Yeah, and I was going to say, does, does Shock just think that it was a solar cycle type uh, thing that, that's, that ended the ice age and the, the comet yes. was just a coincidence? I mean, it just seems too coincidental. He, yeah, he says that he doesn't find that the, the comet evidence is compelling and he doesn't believe there was necessarily a comet. Even there might have been a comet, but he doesn't, he basically, yeah, uh, he sort of poo-poos it oh, and says I see. Okay, doesn't okay. find it compelling. Whereas, I mean, and Hancock doesn't talk particularly about the solar event in his book, but I don't think that he's, you know, against it at all. Yeah, if exactly. I've heard him yeah. it. Um, but neither of them, you know, have sort of said both. I say it's both. I think the evidence is so compelling for both. I mean, we have the records, um, not only the, the geological records, but we have records, you know, from the ancient people showing this. We have, as I say, these ancient texts that talk about the first event. Uh, we have the platinum layer. We have all that. So we, as far as I can say, we know there was a comet, right? And then later on, you know, we have, of course, we have this dip, the cooling that he talks about, you know, obviously Carlson talks about. We have the, the, the sudden cooling that follows. First, there's the, the, the sudden melting, you know, the catastrophic floods that wipe North America clean uh, and also destroy, you know, many regions. Uh, and then we have sudden cooling, uh, you know, the, the ice expands again, you know, following the, the devastation because the dust is thrown up. We have the same kind of effect Toba would have had, you know, this nuclear winter with dust in the air. So we see freezing temperatures. People are, are, are hit with a, that double whammy. But then, you know, there's some remnants of this advanced civilization that has managed, you know, it's global, some remnants have managed to, you know, survive on, and they're doing their best to recover, and then they are hit with a with a, an enormous solar storm, with the, which probably this body has gone in towards the sun, or parts of it have gone into the sun, we don't know, but if it's had this devastation on Earth, it's big enough that it could have had some sort of effect on the sun. If, especially if Parvi went in, um, and that, you know, it, it's caused a plasma storm, you know, or it may just be blind luck that this has been timed with it. Um, but, that, you know, within a couple of thousand years, the sun erupts into a wild plasma storm, you know, and we are just bombarded with energy. Um, and we see now on stone carvings across the planet evidence for this. I mean, you're probably aware that they've, they found um, basically in, in Neolithic artwork, there's representations of plasma shapes um, and there's no way these people you know should have been able to know this but um 
and is it is international. You find them in the Americas, uh, in Australia, in um, Europe, particularly in uh, there's some sites in I think in Bulgaria um, showing that yeah these people were witnessing in the sky these plasma phenomenon, um, and you would have been able to see it all over the planet. In, in some of these cases, what you'd see is um, a cage surrounding the planet. You'd look up, you'd see bars of energy in the air, like literally surrounding the planet. So from any point you're in, you would have seen that when that was happening. Um, other other shapes as well. There's one that looks like a man with his his arms pointing to the sky and his legs out, you know, with the, the knees bent, pointing down. You see that shape, like an H shape almost. And that's a common representation. You know, you may have seen the Indalu, the man with the rainbow over his head and stuff. But there's these many representations. What looks like a man with his arms, you know, the forearms going up and the legs to the side with the, you know, knees bent. But that is actually, it's a pla- although it's, it's being given a, a human form in the artwork, it's a plasma phenomenon. That that strange shape is actually, a you know, is a distinct plasma phenomenon. And we see that one. And with two dots either side of their head, usually two circles, uh, that's a distinct plasma phenomenon. And that's recorded at sites all over the world. So we know that these people were hit again, you know, and I think that that was the... That's what finished us. So, and the interesting thing is that there's this great year, and Darren and I and Randall sort of touched on it last week, and and, um, maybe there's a galactic cycle going on. And if you look at the Ice Age, um, the Ice Ages, the cycle, there's a cycle that seems to happen almost every 26 or 30,000 years. And then I don't know if there's a solar cycle that matches that or not, but it's, it's interesting that maybe there's something going on every... You know, every few thousand years that comes that we, you know, enter into a different um, spot in the solar system or the galaxy and and shit happens. And it's been sort of yeah, predicted I mean, and there's right. myths down down through time saying that this is going to happen again. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the great year of 26,000, you know, years is is encoded into cultures, you know, cultural mythology all yeah. across the planet, yeah, the importance yeah. of that cycle. And that, yeah, the, the argument is that every every half cycle, something seems to get us. I think there's smaller sub-cycles as well. Yeah. I believe that there's a, a 5,200-year cycle as well, which the Mayans record as well, that we see, because we see a lot going on 5,200 years ago as well. You know, there's the rise of some of our civilizations. And I think that was after a clobbering. Yeah. I think yeah. that there, there are smaller destructive cycles, and we don't necessarily Hopefully know what all these are. it's not a half cycle, Jesus. No, yeah. so I think there's I think there's the big ones every thirteen thousand years, That's but there's a sub cycle of five sets of five thousand two hundred years within that same twenty six thousand years. So you have two different things going on here, all cyclical. The Mayans particularly point to this because obviously they tell us again and again, time is cyclical. Time is cyclical. You know, every five thousand two hundred years is one cycle. Every twenty six thousand years is another big cycle. But there, there, there's always a destruction event risk at the end of these cycles they tell us and like you know i mean hancock talks about that yeah that this the mayan calendar long count seems to correlate with evidence he's found from gobekli tepe and stuff which suggests that they are all telling us that you know at the end of that long twenty six thousand, you know or every thirteen thousand, that we get a risk of being clobbered and that we're in that window now you know that uh. i mean and I know I used to study the Mayan calendar and all that. So, I mean, I know quite a lot about that. I mean, like many, I suppose, I sort of thought, yeah, probably it was kind of accurate to 2012 and all the rest of it. And I, I guess I made that mistake. Uh, but now I understand, like, from like Hankel's perspective, which is, I think, far more accurate, is that they were pointing at the middle of a window of time. They did their best. You know, they couldn't be 100% like, it's going to happen on Wednesday, you know, on this year. Because it's too, it's, you know, it's too vague. It's a cosmic event. But what they could say is, look, you're in that window of... 80 he says 80 years you know we could say one degree of precession 72 years um that you know that in that degree of precession that somewhere in it 
is when the clobbering tends to come and that we're in that up until the next say uh, i think it's next i think he says the next 20 30 years but there's a good chance in the next 20 years that we we experience that um and i think that's yeah i think that's frighteningly likely and um I haven't got much time, but I, I, I think there's something you guys might find interesting. I'll, I'll just quickly throw out there because in terms of the origin of um, white people and the Europeans, I, I think there's something to do with this there because some of these some of these legends talk about, you know, obviously the arcs, you know, people went into the arcs and all this stuff. And you, you find this story all around the world that, that when the great devastation happened and the flood and all the rest of it, people built arcs, uh-huh. but also others went under the ground. And we know that there's a lot of underground shelters and stuff, but there's a really old like text from the Middle East, which talks about basically the building of what sounds like a modern bunker, like a completely modern bunker into which the, the seed of all life is placed, you know, but it's, it's basically the way it's described is as um, embryonic life is being taken down into this five, I think it's a five layered construction under the ground, somewhere up in most likely up in the Caucasus region is where I would place this event. Um, and that they build, they are told, you know, the destruction is coming and they build what's uh, this, this, this site. And then it has a small population over time, but it doesn't reproduce the new care, te- like the new um, caretakers come from these seeds yeah. So every now and again, a man and a woman's seed are taken and grown, you know, basically from the cryogenic freezer, and so to keep the population going under the ground. And then eventually, you know, the time comes for them to come up, and they. I believe this is what we call like the the Aryan invasion of Asia that the that these people came up out of. You know, almost like Fallout. If you played Fallout. I think we've got something like that, though. You know, I think these people down a bunker and eventually they come back up and they see all the wild, you know, raging tribes of the world or whatever. And they've still got some remnant of this lost civilization, some technology that these are, if you like, the magicians of the gods. Um, and that these people, I believe, have they've lost their pigmentation because they've been under the ground for generations. And, and I know that this is going to be more into the wacky side, which I can't support completely yet. But I think we're going to find more and more evidence that that the white race really is from the Caucasus region. The Caucasian race comes out of some hidden sites up in that area, which is not that far from Gobekli Tepe. If you go up towards where you know Georgian Republic and um, Armenia. I think that we're we're talking in that area, and this is where we're finding these really old sites. I think that you know these. I f- I suspect that you know there really was advanced survival bunkers, or as advanced as that technology allowed. Now we don't know. Was it just that they're saying seeds and it's a bit allegorical or something? But I certainly think that they are they are accurately describing bunkers. You know that they are going down into bunkers to live in them. And I've been down into sites in Egypt under the pyramids which are not supposed to exist, but, you know, a friend took me down into some of those. And I'll tell you what, out in the deserts near the pyramids are what looks to me like bunkers. They have these strange concrete-looking structures we went into, and they're not... I've never seen them pictures of anywhere. They're not officially, like, shown to exist, but they look to me like bunkers. And you go down the steps into them, there's um, square... Uh, like entrances, you know, you drop down to these, they've just got handholds on each side of the walls. You sort of got to push your back against the wall and go down these little grooved handholds. And it goes down into tunnels. And the guy is saying to me, look, you know, the shafts go deeper and deeper. So some of them you can't see to the bottom. You drop burning papers that you can't see to the bottom if you go down further. And you know, I think that these existed in multiple places. And I, I believe that, you know, we went down under the ground, both in Egypt and in the Caucasus and in other areas, and people lived it out under the ground. And if they were truly advanced in terms of technology, then maybe they're not just making up the bit about the seeds of life and these what sound like embryos, but they're possibly what we think of as the um, the white Caucasus have lost their melanin in their skin from being 
out of sunlight. Not just in the north and in the snow and in in the winter conditions, more like just underground completely. Underground, yeah. Mm. Because they literally, they were not exposed to that light. And he describes artificial light. He says there are two kinds of light. There's the natural light, like the sun and the moon. It says, and there's the other light that is self-creating. It's like, what is self-creating light? You're going to use in a bunker. Like you're telling me you're going to go into the ground, but don't worry, there's self-creating light. What's that then? Because I can only think of one thing you could think of in a bunker that you'd call self-creating unnatural light, and that's like electrical light of some sort, or 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 a technology that allows you to create light underground through static, through static electricity, or through something. Yeah, you you obviously know something, don't you? That you know you've come up with a way where you can do that. So there's some really peculiar, like texts that are pointing towards a truly advanced civilization, not just the you know the level of the, the ancient Greeks or Romans or something. That was wiped out, but maybe the elements of it had got at least close to where we're at. Maybe if it was like a Victorian level, you know, I don't know if it was space age, but even if you say it was a Victorian level civilization, that it had electricity, it had lights, you know, it had a fairly good understanding of astronomy, it had telescopes. I mean, some of the Mayan knowledge, you know, of the um, the movement of planets is well beyond what you'd really think you can tell from just looking with your eyes. And they had like the the the, the cycle of Mars like within within like hours wrong you know for, the, for its annual movement i mean that's pretty good just looking up at that little dot you know with no telescopes so i mean these seem to be hand-me-downs of people that did have telescopes did have you know this kind of level of science or at least at least our level 100 years ago or something like that they're they're, they're kind of close to us you know yeah that kind of makes uh, sense because it wasn't really there's not really a really good theory about that I don't think otherwise, right? Of where the white people came from, really. Besides aliens and all that kind of stuff, but but, yeah, um, and I I don't think we need aliens again. Like like I well, look, I don't dismiss it further back in time. I mean, I I don't go into in this work, but you know, I have written about it, and I but I see that if there was an influence from them, that it goes back much further. You know, back to closer to a million years ago. That's that's where I that's where I find the evidence. You know, if anything is in that that period, eight hundred thousand years ago. That possibly then, you know, when we see this sudden emergence of all these different hominins and the sudden leap forward in the brain and the sudden change, if if there was involvement in some sort of, you know, that kind of way, or if it was an advanced human civilization doing genetic engineering or whatever, I see that happening 800,000 years ago, if anywhere. I don't really see the evidence when people talk about the Anunnaki doing this 200,000 years ago or 400,000 years ago or in recent time. I don't think there's a compelling evidence. I think the rest of this story is definitely a human story. Yeah. You know, if, if there was any any involvement, I only see it that, that far back. You know, I don't see we need to put it in in the recent times at all. Um, it looks like, you know, we build out of stone we're not using like we don't see advanced like nano fiber you know nano carbon tubule built domes or something where you'd say well look oh, this looks alien technology or something we see big stones being moved around right which to me i don't think you fly to another planet and you start cutting big stones and you know you, you're gonna have something better aren't you? you've got there on a spaceship that can travel at like light speed or something and you say now let's start hewing the stone and <laughs> you know it doesn't make sense you know you would just shoot down nanobots and they build you a dome or something you know i just don't believe you can make space age technology with stone age technology. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. They might have had electricity in Egypt. Like we had this guy on uh, really good theories about a lot of the uh, hieroglyphs showing that they're using static electricity and accumulating it, and and uh, even having you know batteries and, and lights and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you know, they probably they certainly probably did. And I think that if we go back far enough, that there was electricity. How it was generated, you know, maybe it's different. You know. 
I can't talk for much longer. I'll just say that you know, I'm afraid at three o'clock I have to go. But yeah. um, I will say that if you look at, say, the, the Great Pyramid, we know that once upon a time it was clad in in white mica. And it, it's actually an eight-sided structure um, yeah. and that, you know, is concaved. And it looks like it's some sort of refractor, you know, of, of energy, of light. And I, I do wonder if, if it wasn't in some way harvesting energy, maybe with... Maybe once upon a time there were structures like that they used to harvest sunlight. Um, you know, now we do that today, don't we? You know, we have solar panels. Maybe it was something like that, or it was refracting that light to somewhere else where it was harvested. Yeah. And I think that maybe even if it wasn't doing that, maybe it's a copy of something that did do that. Because it's why is it eight sided? Why is it a refractor? Why have they made it like that? Uh, why was it clad in white mica, which would have you know reflected sunlight and all the rest of it? So there, there's some strange things there, as if they're echoing back to a knowledge when that was useful, when yeah. you know the refract, yeah. refracting energy and light was useful. So perhaps we did gather sunlight in the past in some way, and it wasn't necessary. You know, and it's Tesla and people said, maybe we had wireless electricity. Maybe we won't ever see the wires and the generators and things that we expect, because maybe they didn't go down our path. They went down another path, exactly. but they still got electrical yeah. energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, you'll see my work probably going down that route. You know, I'm going to be tackling the the... The fall and rise of that civilization wow. and linking it, linking it to the Austra, you know, the Australian Aboriginals and their culture, the wow. ongoing culture. That sounds great. I mean, we're looking forward to reading that. And I mean, it'd be nice if you get your books on audio too. Eventually, I like to uh, definitely think that's popular with our, with our uh, listeners on the audio format. But um, yeah. we, maybe you should come back on when when that comes out. We can hit this stuff again. It's been a great chat. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, and um, yeah. you know, I think we covered a lot, a lot there. So hopefully oh, yeah. your listeners like it, and uh, yeah, be glad to come back. I yeah, better go because yeah, yeah, my wife's got to do some yeah, work, thanks. so I'm afraid yeah. I have to run. Right on. Yeah, it was great to really visualize. It really helped me uh, go through that whole timeline and visualize everything, and uh, it did. It was it was a great chat. So uh, thanks for spending so much time here. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, okay take care, guys. Bye, Bruce. Cheers. Bye bye. How was a chat with Bruce Fenton in Africa? 20 years, motherfuckers. Build a bunker. Yeah, that was good. Wow. Was I got, good I got a good picture of that now. I had, had a, something else to say in the outro, and I, I don't remember it. Another three and a half hour episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Support these guys, the they just come out of nowhere, and they're just like articulate and smart, and they've done all this research, and they're putting all this stuff together. It's pretty fascinating. Where else can you get three hours of juicy stuff like that for free? Yeah. No ads. No ads, no sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think of that? No budget. It was like good it? on. Yeah, it was yeah. good. Absolutely. Fun stuff. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I fun wanted to ask one about the hobbits, actually. Stuff. Like how far back the hobbits go. Really have an affinity for hobbits. And elves. I wonder if should ask me yeah. if elves are around. Wow. Is it because you're short? What? Is that why you like hobbits and elves? I'm not short compared to half the people we talked about on the show tonight. The hobbits in the house, that's why, because you could be king. The pygmies. <laughs> king of the pygmies. <laughs> okay, guys, well, uh, yeah, support the show. Go America.ca slash support, spam, gram. Uh, do everything in the, in the show notes, really. Sign up for the newsletter, review the show, a bunch of stuff you can do there. Uh, so now we'll keep it short and sweet. We've gone over three hours again, so uh, thanks for listening, guys, and we will see you next week. If more of you supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Send it now.
guidance and protection and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. If more you supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. For America slash Grimerica.ca slash support.